0: Two guys in different spots staying at home, but still talking on the radio. It's a miracle. Pinder and Steinberg is only on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Clearly, we can play into the summer. Uh, clearly, we can play next season, which we intend to do in its entirety, starting later. Uh, and so, with with a lot of timing options, we have a great deal of flexibility And we're not going to rush anything. We're not going to do anything that's crazy. We're going to try and do something under the circumstances at the time that is sensible.
1: Well, things are starting to maybe take a little bit more form when it comes to if and how the NHL is going to return and finish the season. And and we always underline the word if because it is a big if at this point. There are a ton of. Of variables that we just don't know about and as such there can be no guarantees here we don't know for sure uh, even if the nhl has the best laid plans if they're going to actually be able to come back and finish off the season but that was gary bettman nhl commissioner on in conversation with ron mcclain last night you heard it coast to coast on the Sportsnet radio network and i uh, might have seen it on the sports television network as well every monday wednesday friday at five o'clock calgary time on both television and radio Radio, you can catch in conversation with Ron McLean. Four NHL cities seems to be the, I guess, most popular idea out there, right? It sounds like four NHL cities tournament style type thing whether or not they can finish off the regular season or not i don't know but that seems to be the idea the nhl is running with most at this point that you choose four of the 31 nhl cities that you could a feasibly host multiple teams in and b has been relatively unscathed or less hit by the COVID-19 pandemic that's kind of what we're looking at right now or at the very least that's what it sure does sound like uh the NHL is looking at right now yeah
2: and that's where we're at at this point and who knows where we're at in a week uh you know it wasn't that long ago we were talking about neutral sites and boy this is going to be plan A for the league or at least this is what is the latest and greatest idea that they've got and Last chat we've heard, those are not the priority. So we'll see where the priority is at in another week or two, and I wouldn't be surprised if it changes again. I really wouldn't at all. That's kind of been the evolution, right?
1: Well, it kind of has to be. Like, I think that you put together these plans and you start putting together different ideas as to how it's going to come together and you have to evolve. You have to say, okay, that was a good idea, but not a hundred percent feasible. Let's take things from this idea and use it as a framework and then make some changes so that it can be feasible. And I think there's probably, I would love to hear some of the conversations between the nhl top brass and board of governors and how they're trying to get this thing going and how many different iterations we've seen from the beginning of this thing in march to now here we are almost at the end of april and to see how things have changed and and how the ideas might have looked s- six weeks ago and now how they might look today here's a little bit more from bettman as to why hosting it in a number of NHL cities, if feasible, is maybe the most ideal thing for them. Rye, are there any of the different ideas that have been thrown around or discussed that have made more sense to you or that have seemed more feasible to you? Uh, because, you know, throughout this whole thing, when we've had these conversations about the NHL restarting, uh, I, I think that you're – I don't – I don't think you've been a a pessimist as much as you've just been uh, cautious or cautiously skeptical about the whole thing. Have any of these things been more realistic or uh, have jumped off the page to you as maybe having a better chance of being able to happen?
2: I don't know. I mean, they're all so pie in the sky right now. I mean, we don't even know how players are going to return to North America. We don't even know, you know, what – potential cities are going to look like with this virus. Uh, one of the things about flattening the curve is you're, in theory, at least with, you know, the main article everyone's been reading about this, is that you're extending the amount of time the virus has in your community, but you're not overwhelming the healthcare system. So right. maybe a place that's a disaster now is in much better shape than these places that have flattened the curve in, say, two months. Um, so I'm not suggesting that's m- most likely thing to happen, but That's certainly based on what that theory of flattening the curve is. It's a steeper, shorter amount of time, meaning markets that are in really big trouble right now might be much better suited to host things like this in, say, July or August. I don't know. So, I mean, really what this comes down to is that this is a continuing game of adapting and changing and Looking at the environments that are changing and trying to come up with a plan that works. So to say what's realistic, what isn't, we still need that time machine we don't have. And I still think, you know, what we've heard Bettman say yesterday is going to change in two weeks, just like what we heard leaked out of league places two weeks ago is very different than what we heard yesterday. So I'm not looking at things saying they're not realistic. I'm looking at things saying we don't know what the future looks like. So how in the world are we supposed to know whether model A, B, or C is going to work better than others? Let me Clearly, ask they you have this, been, then.
1: Yeah. Are you are you any more I don't know hopeful, optimistic, whatever the word would be that they can play before the end of this season or they can resume this season? Are you any more hopeful or optimistic about that?
2: I don't really think that I've had this firm stance of here's what's going to happen. My whole stance is we don't have a clue what's around the corner. So mm-hmm. I remain You know, excited if it happens, but skeptical that it happens because what did we think the world was going to look like a month ago? We're in day 43 of the sports apocalypse. So what did it look like on day 30 or day 31 or day 33? I don't know. Like, where we're at now isn't where we thought we'd be. Some places are way better than we thought, like Edmonton, and some places are way worse, like New York, where, you know, they've been piling up 10,000 deaths a day. That's That's incredible. Like, I have no idea what things look like, and to be able to say – what's going to happen requires an idea of what the future looks like. And we just don't know that yet. Like have we even seen any major markets that host NHL teams peak yet? Yeah. I don't know that we have a firm answer on that. Right. So until we know what that looks like and until we know if we're going to get a second wave and you know, I was reading some stuff today where they're testing for antibodies and that's in some places a really good development and in other places it's not, I mean, Your guess is as good as anyone else's. Uh, Epidemiologists clearly have some expertise here. I do not. I have no idea what this thing looks like in two weeks, never mind two months when, you know, what is it now? We're on uh, April 23rd. June 23rd will still be. Yeah, exactly. So if they're floating July, August, I mean, I have no idea what that looks like. No idea at all. Are we working from the studio downtown? Are we allowed to travel easily? Are flights resumed? Have we beaten this thing? Are we dealing with a second wave in places that thought they were through it? No idea.
1: Yeah. By the way, not 10,000 deaths a day in New York. Uh, 10,000 10, cases, cases a day. Uh, just thought I'd clarify that just so that nobody That's probably yells important. at you on the text line. Um, no, probably deserve like to be all to... that yelling no, I, out I, facts. Sending I, like real. To, uh, I like to protect you. I like to make sure that you are protected in these things. Look, I, I mean, I certainly... Here's, here's what I'll say. I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to look if it happens. Uh, I, I certainly am very much aware of the fact that there's a decent enough chance that it doesn't happen. Like, you know, these things are, you know, pie in the sky or, or you know, utopian thinking or whatever. Like, I, I don't know whether or not it's going to happen, but I will say that it's a little bit... It's a little bit more exciting, or at the very least, like, there's a little bit more of a buzz about it. You're like, okay, well, this this doesn't seem crazy. Uh, I'm not saying that it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow either. We don't have that magic time machine that you keep on talking about, but at the very least it seems like there's some forward momentum and it seems like you don't have to necessarily squint or, or look through an electron microscope to see how they could come back. It's, it's by no means a guarantee. I I don't even know if it's a 50, 50 shot, but at the very least there is something somewhat tangible that you can say, well, at least they're working on something and at least there's a chance. And, And, and I would say that here we are the fourth day of this week my overall optimism levels or excitement levels or buzz levels of the whole thing a whole lot higher now than than maybe they have been at any point and, and maybe that's just a maybe that's just a product of of adjusting to this new life or this new normal maybe that's just a product of getting used to the fact that we haven't had sports and so you know what if it comes back great i'll be excited and if it doesn't i'll understand i i don't know but i do feel a little bit more buoyed i do feel a little bit more excited about the whole thing than i have at any other point
2: well and i think it's exciting to hear details because even if it doesn't happen to hear how things could look now it's easier to imagine it happening right so at the beginning of the pandemic you're like how's this even going to happen yeah what's going to what are they going to do if markets are different and how are they going to do a training like what you don't have any answers so when you start to hear the commissioner flush out some of the processes that could be in place it's just easier to imagine it right so of course it seems more real, but you know, there's uh, like, I still think like, I want you to answer this as, as and let's, let's like, troubleshoot this as best as we can. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're down to the elite eight in the NHL's playoffs, a condensed okay. playoffs. So you've got four series going. Let's say in the Pacific, you've got, you know, just for entertainment, say Calgary, Edmonton are meeting in the Pacific division final. In the Central, you've got St. Louis, Colorado, and whatever it is in the East. What happens if there's an outbreak on the Colorado team five games into a series with St. Louis, and the Oilers and Flames, the Flames have swept the Oilers and they're sitting waiting? What
1: happens now? You probably have to shut it down for two weeks. Minimum. Yeah.
2: And so now the Eastern Conference final, do they play or do they wait? When those two teams are ready probably wait and so now you've got people sitting still for a minimum of two weeks in the middle of this tournament eating into your timeline of well we need to get started by this day in november to make sure we can fit in next season i mean even if this thing gets up and running the the, there's a there's not the okay it started we're good like you're still going to be every single day how can we mitigate risk as best we can how can we get to the finish line i mean think about a nightmare scenario imagine you you get all the way to the stanley cup final and you're four games in tied 2-2 and you have a massive outbreak on both teams it it the absolutely <laughs> right?
1: it's, it's absolutely something that is a possibility and something that they need to game plan for but i
2: and i think they are i yeah. would
1: suggest that if they were able to return that they would very much have contingencies in place for all of those things because yes i don't i can't i can't see the nhl coming back and being caught out by that or any sports league coming back and and playing and being caught out by that like i mean
2: no they'll have a plan it's just whether you can finish you can have plans all you want but if you can't control the virus right you might go all the way down this path of giving away the cup in this weird format under a condensed regular season, maybe allow 18, 20, 22 playoff teams to give a chance to the clubs that were just on the outside of the wild card. You might get all the way down that road, steps away from the finish line and not give away this thing and or cost yourself the 82 games that they have stated is a priority. If you say, okay, well, we have to finish it. We're this close to finishing.
0: Screw it. We need four NHL caliber locker rooms. Because if you're going to play three games in one day, you got to be moving things around. We've got to make sure that we're taking the appropriate sanitizing procedures after a team moves out. And frankly, our buildings are the best equipped in North America to deal with what our needs may be if we go this route.
2: We're playing 72 next year. So, I, like, I just, we are so far away from having a clue of what the world looks like. But it is neat to see some of the ideas of how things could be laid out in front of us by the commissioner. But I I just – it would be really difficult to say that, well, now we've got a better chance of of getting this done. I mean, I don't know that that's – anything we've heard in the last 24 hours can tell you that it's safer than any plans they had before, so much as we just know more about the plans that they have.
1: Well, and and there's a little bit more of an idea as to where has been less hit by this thing – And you're starting to get a little bit more of an idea as to what places might feasibly be actually, you know, able to, to host something like this. Um, And that's exactly as as it stands right now. Yeah. So
2: if there's antibodies developed in the state of New York because of their access or their, I guess, um, contact with the virus, that's going to be a safer place before a place that's really sheltered but maybe gets drilled later on because very few people have been exposed to it or the antibody, right? Yeah. So maybe Edmonton isn't a safe place in July. It is now, we think.
1: Well, and I mean, again, there's a lot of unknowns, and there's going to be a lot of if, – if they are able to return, there's going to be a lot of work done with – local health authorities and and leading epidemiologists and all that type of stuff um so like this is this is still a long way from happening like okay we're talking about the nhl potentially coming back and and there's a little bit of a buzz about the nhl and other leagues potentially being able to come back and that's fun but let's also remember we're still even if they do come back that's July, and and there's a lot that can happen, as you've said many times, between now and the beginning of July. This is the fourth month of the year. We're almost done. It July is the seventh month of the year. I know. I'm. This is what you come to this uh, this station for is for breaking news like that. That's a long way away. So there is absolutely a lot that can happen between now and then. A text on the Glenn Morati uh, fan feedback text line at nine six zero nine six zero. You know, I don't care where they want to play hockey. I just want them to get started playing hockey. And I I do feel uh, that is a a large sentiment right now. But I think most people who have that sentiment also understand that it needs to come back safely. And it needs to come back only when it's okay to actually come back.
2: Yeah, and I think that was one of the messages that was loud and clear from the commissioner yesterday. is that This isn't a race. We're going to do it when it's right. And that is, you know, an interesting juxtaposition next to we're not getting any revenues right now. And that's a serious issue because one says, let's hustle back and get revenues. But the other says, we got to make sure we do this right. But but I do think there is some middle ground and that they aren't mutually exclusive that,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: you know, this is a five plus billion dollar business that is pulling in close to $0 right now at a time when it should be at, you know, like high water marks for revenue with yeah. theoretically what like eight different series ongoing right now with maybe we're through into beginning around two, but I mean, this should be most expensive tickets closest to max capacity. If not hundred percent sold out TV ratings through the roof. Like this is supposed to be the bonanza playoffs. Like here we go. Everyone's making big dough. There's nothing coming in. So I get the idea of okay, let's try to get back. But as we sort of talked about before, to co- if you come back too early, you might not be able to finish it. So I, I understand that's that's a serious tightrope for the league to walk.
1: For sure. One of the uh, different articles, Greg Wasinski wrote about this. Frank Saravelli over at TSN.ca wrote about this today. One of the cities that has been mentioned numerous times is Edmonton because it is what the fifth largest city. In Canada, and of the five it's five largest cities in Canada, it has been the least hard hit. Uh, it has got a solid infrastructure model they've got a rink connected to a hotel where you don't have to leave um, you've got two rinks it's a new uh, rink. there it's a brand new rink the facilities are strong like you can understand why edmonton has been one of the teams that has been linked to maybe hosting pacific division teams here's our premier jason kenney yesterday who was asked about those reports and about the nhl potentially being able to resume in this province
4: I can say that I did receive a call from uh, NHL commissioner Gary Bettman um, who uh, wanted to ask some questions about Alberta's status in uh, combating COVID and uh, uh, there was a very general conversation. Uh, We have not received a formal proposal of any kind. Um, I underscored that uh, uh, if if a proposal were forthcoming, we would obviously expect uh, uh, the league to prepare a very detailed uh, plan to mitigate risk, uh, and so uh, i can 't really comment further. Um, I would just say that um, uh, obviously, as we get into the summer we, we hope to be able to uh, to see somewhat more activity in our as part of our relaunch um, it 's pretty clear to me that if something like that were to happen, uh, we would not have uh, large crowds gathering in arenas. Um, But I gather the NHL is looking at at finishing the season uh, in arenas uh, for television purposes, uh, but without large crowds. Whether or not we could accommodate that, we do not yet know. We have not yet uh, received a formal request, and obviously we would turn uh, to the Chief Medical Officer uh, for her advice.
1: There's a little bit more on this whole story. Uh, That is uh, Premier Jason Kenney uh when he was uh, asked about that yesterday well it's uh, maybe a little bit more exciting time when it comes to this whole conversation welcome to pender and steinberg on a thursday afternoon uh logan gordon is in the basement systems downtown studio Pinder at Shea pender i'm here in the Beltline in uh, my home office as we are well underway today couple of other things to balance off you uh first of all uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets have signed Elvis Merzlikens to a two-year contract extension today. Ooh. So uh, there's the guy that had been so huge for them uh, in the last, uh, what, number of months leading up to the pause. He had been absolutely massive for the team. I want to um, say,
2: like, December or late November, he took over for an injured uh, Corpusalo and was just sensational out of the gate.
1: And those shutout numbers, the save percentage numbers off the charts... So he's been signed to a two-year contract extension in Columbus. Uh, Top of the hour, some very significant news potentially coming for our city. Uh, Whether it's a postponement, a cancellation, or no news, I don't know. But there is an announcement coming from the Calgary Stampede at the top of the hour. Our sister station at 660 News will have all the details over there. But does that mean a cancellation of the 2020 Stampede? Does that mean a postponement for the time being? Before you know, trying to see if. they can run it later than usual i don't know the answers to those questions but that is at the top of the hour and finally a little bit of normalcy tonight ryan and i am excited for the next three days because it's not going to look like the normal nfl draft it's not going to be at radio city it's not going to be on the uh, on board on, on broadway in nashville or where it was supposed to be on the strip in las vegas it's going to all be remote on the but I know, well, they're going to have boats and they were going to have a stage overlooking the Bellagio Fountains. No, that's not going to happen. But the N- NFL draft does start tonight. Three rounds with round number one going this evening. I'm excited for it. I'm excited for it because it, it even, even though everything is completely in bizarro world right now and we don't even know if the NFL is going to be able to play next season, fact of the matter is the nfl draft tonight and over the weekend it's, it's just going to be a little bit of a distraction give us a little bit of sports to talk about and make us remember kind of what the sporting world used to be before this whole thing started i'm looking forward to tonight
2: yeah and then it's not you know the the action of sport but it's it's uh what i think fans really have come to enjoy which is the i guess evolution of prospect and collegiate star into NFL player and some major foundational pieces that, you know, I think this draft in in the NFL is probably the easiest draft to consume for fans because you can see players come in and make an immediate impact in the league. In baseball, if it's a college player, you're still probably a couple of years away. If it's a high schooler, it could take as many as five years. uh, And that's pretty normal. Hockey, we know it takes a while unless you're a full-out like a, a full out star. And the NBA, there's a lot of hit and miss because there's just not a lot of minutes out there. This mm-hmm. is the league where guys from round one all the way through to the end of the weekend will come in and make massive impacts immediately in the league. And so for that reason, the payoff is just that much quicker. It's easier to get into drafts because you don't have to wait a half decade to know if it was a mistake or a good move, right? It's a yeah. fun one to watch.
1: So that is tonight, and we have got NFL draft coverage for you starting at five o'clock so pinder and steinberg wraps up tonight five o'clock nfl draft coverage tonight uh that is what we've got for you here on sportsnet 960 the fan round one of the nfl draft coming your way starting at five this evening and does some definite canadian content notre dame receiver chase claypool looks like he is absolutely in the mix to go on night one of the nfl draft the uh, abbotsford product uh has an opportunity to go somewhere in the first round He's probably the only Canadian who goes on night 1 but some day 2 and day 3 like this could be one of the strongest NFL drafts for Canadian prospects we've ever seen uh Neville Gallimore who is the number 1 ranked CFL prospect looks like he'll probably go at some point he's out of Oklahoma uh he'll probably go some point tomorrow we mentioned Claypool out of Notre Dame he was the number 2 ranked uh, CFL prospect Uh, University of Alberta offensive lineman Michael O'Connell looks like he has an opportunity of being drafted over the weekend and it's not just guys who get drafted but immediately following the draft there's always those priority signings uh we're going to talk to deshaun brissette coming up at 3:30 today he's the number five ranked player in cfl central scouting does he go over the weekend does he get a contract over the weekend how does that affect his cfl draft status the cfl draft is a week from today so lots of football for you over the next week or so we're underway on pinder and steinberg when we come back more on this story about the nhl though with our nhl insider chris Johnston. He joins us coming up in about five minutes' time. Pinder and Steinberg on a Thursday. Sportsnet 960, The Fan.
0: Calgary guys staying at home. Ryan Pinder and Pat Steinberg talking sports, pop culture, life, and anything else. Your afternoon diversion is right here. Stream online at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Download the Sportsnet or Radio Player Canada apps. Pinder and Steinberg are on Sportsnet 960, The Fan.
1: Let's say hello to our NHL insider Chris Johnston now from Sportsnet and sportsnet.ca he joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on the program and uh, CJ Thanks looks like maybe a little bit more in terms of a plan starting to take shape on a potential nhl restart we're starting to hear a whole lot more uh, i know that you wrote on this today commissioner gary bettman speaking with ron mcclain on in conversation yesterday like, it, it feels like maybe we're starting to get more of a a picture of what this might look like
5: we are and i think that that's because the nhl is starting to make some decisions you know namely ruling out a few of those neutral site uh, options that uh, they'd at least c- considered in, in theory, uh, you know, when they were looking at contingencies and, and now the plan is pretty clear that they you know, are going to have, if they can play, of course, being the, the huge caveat here, but they're, they're going to pick, uh, you know, some NHL cities to uh, centralize games in. Uh, they'd hope to finish the regular season, meaning all 31 teams playing games uh, across four cities if possible, if if that's not possible, I, I do think that they would go to the, the expanded playoff scenario that we've talked about in the past. You know, probably something uh, like a 2014 scenario in those cities. But but one way or another, it, it is becoming clear, kind of the 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 way they envision this. And and you know, I think it's a reflection as well of all the things that are needed to make the the bubble work here. Uh, you know, with the coronavirus to to you know have have places with certain facilities have hotels nearby those arenas and lots of other ice as well to for teams to skate on and practice so what are some of
1: the logistics and concerns the nhl needs to take into place like what are some of the keys that they're going to have to make sure that they have all ironed out if this is going to be an actual reality
5: well, namely, I think they're going to need permission. And, you know, at this point, they, they've reached out to some local government people. Obviously, you know, they've leaned on their own medical experts in, in formulating this plan. And, and, you know, they have a, a virus specialist, uh, you know, on, on retainer at this point. So, you know, I, I think that really they're, they're going to have to wait and see if the borders open up, uh, if they're going to be allowed to play in some of the places they're eyeing by the local government. And then, you know, I think that they're going to have to really dig down on, how this is functionally going to work. And, and, you know, that's one thing I don't have a clear view on. Is it going to be taking players uh, temperature, you know, when they, they come and go, which is something that we've heard bandied about, for example, in the German soccer league as they're looking to restart here in the next few weeks. It's, it's the the plan they're going to take. Is there going to be mass testing? You know, I think that some of the nuts and bolts of this haven't been ironed out. And frankly, haven't been taking the NHL players association yet either. So you know, I would presume when and if that happens that, that there could be some changes and some negotiations around some of these things. But you know, I think that that really is it. That they're kind of you know mapping out how it would look, and then they're waiting to see if they're able to do it, if 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 the governments will allow it, and and if that is the case, obviously they have to have discussions with the players and uh, you know make decisions that way before going forward with it.
1: And I know that they haven't necessarily had formal conversations with the players' association about this, but do you get the sense from players that you've spoken with and been in contact with that, you know, there is a, an appetite to do something like
5: this? I think it's it's touch and go. You know, I, I've heard from some guys that have concerns about potentially being away from families for for two months or something. If you know, you're talking about a team that ends up going and finishing the regular season, which on its own the league thinks we'll take three weeks if they can do that. And then, you know, whatever period afterwards, the, the playoffs take up. I mean, that there's, that's a lot to ask of the players, but you know, obviously there's, there's other guys either that don't have families or maybe that are less concerned with that. I think that they'll, they'll obviously, you know, among the population of players at 750 deep, there's going to be a range of opinions on, on that type of thing. And, and, you know, some of those concerns I think will have to be addressed, but ultimately if the league finds a way to, to do this safely, you know, I have to believe it's it's likely to happen if if they're going to be allowed to to operate in these jurisdictions where they want to play, and and uh, if there's nothing in the way, and they come up with a plan that that protects to the best degree possible everyone's health and safety. You know, it, it does seem as though they're quite intent on on trying to execute this idea and and find a way to complete this season.
1: One of the uh, cities that has been thrown around or or mentioned numerous times is Edmonton. I think. Uh... Uh, Minnesota, Raleigh have been two of the other cities. Like, are these are, are these the leading ca- candidates for where they would be looking? The way you understand it, too.
5: Yeah, I think that we could call them leading candidates, but but they're not only candidates because you know, I think the league's mindful of the fact that you know we're still two and a half months out, probably give or take, before this would ever come to life, and and there's the possibility for outbreaks, there's the possibility for change of heart, and all those things. So I, I think that they probably have a list that's more. Like ten cities deep, give or take, uh, of of options. You know the the appeal, especially of in Edmonton, is that they have a practice rink right within the the building. There, uh, they have a nice new hotel right across the street that's connected by a land bridge. Uh, you know, I think that there's a way to contain that that building, and obviously, it's a new arena with lots of amenities, lots of uh, different dressing room space, and everything needed to to make this happen. I you know I can see uh, the appeal of that that city in particular. I think Toronto is one of the places they've looked. Uh, Tampa and Florida both. I've heard Vegas is a possibility. I think Calgary might even at least be be looked at. And and so, you know, the the, the cities you've heard are probably, I would say, at this point the most likely, but they're certainly not the only places the league is, is looking at as a possibility. And, and um, you know, a lot of this will depend on, on how things develop with the virus here in the next couple of weeks and, and months and, and where things are at, I guess, at that point.
1: And final one on this, and, and that's just on, you know, going back and, and watching Ron with uh, with Gary yesterday, and, and the commissioner talked about how they, they don't want to rush this back. Being first back doesn't matter, but at the same time talked about how it is definitely an issue. I know that you quoted this on your Twitter that, you know, right now there's no revenues coming in, and, and that is certainly something that they can't be overlooked. Where do they... Like, how difficult is that to strike the balance of not rushing back, but also knowing that they they do need revenues to start coming in at some point?
5: Well, I, I think it's it can almost be categorized two ways. I, I, they just don't see themselves as racing, say, against the NBA. And, you know, let's face it, the, the NHL has some disadvantages if we're talking about, you know, which North American sport can get up and running first. I mean, the, the mere fact that we're probably looking at three-week training camps, uh, just because players have to get back on the ice and and get in in shape that way is probably going to put them at a disadvantage if we're handicapping, you know, which sport can get back sooner. I I don't think that there's the same sort of technical specialized skill that NBA players, you know, haven't been able to work on. Obviously I'm sure some of those guys haven't been able to shoot and all those things, but, you know, I I do think that that puts them in a spot where it's going to be hard to, to race back. But, you know, all that being said, I think that the, they're certain, they're not downplaying the fact that they, they want to get back. And I think, you know, quite honestly, the league's willing to play into September uh, if that's what it takes. You know, I I, I don't know that there's that the cutoff date is maybe even as early as I once thought it was. You know, maybe they they don't even start till August. I don't think that can be completely ruled out. I doubt it's it's certainly not the preferred way. Obviously, that they'd like to be playing games in June if if that allows. But you know, I think that they've they're they're approaching the calendar with a high degree of flexibility, uh, and so that that's where the priorities lie. it's not so much about where they stand versus the other sports leagues. But I do think that they're going to do everything they can to finish the season and find a way to, you know, start to claw back some of that revenue that that will be lost for 2019, 20 and, and, you know, build some, some momentum into the the season to come after it.
1: He's Chris Johnston. Our NHL insider joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on Pinder and Steinberg.
2: CJ, just listening to what you laid out there, the, the notion of teams that are so far out of it that, playoffs are unrealistic even if they run the table and get help i find that fascinating especially when uh we recall the comments that drew Doughty made is there uh do you think a way to welcome 22 or 24 teams back or is this all about trying to recover as much revenue as possible and, and even bringing back teams that are probably operating like they're heading into the offseason because there's there's
5: nothing left to play for in the standings you, certainly the priority is, is to have all 31 teams finish off the regular season. And so there are 189 total regular season games left when the season was paused. You know, the league thinks they can play in three weeks using four venues, three games a day can can churn through those games in, in roughly three weeks uh, to, to finish off the season. Now, I don't know how likely that is. It, it's, it's hard for me to even handicap, you know, if that's going to happen, but that's, that's, it's pretty clear. That's the message here. I mean, if you're, I remember the Detroit Red Wings or Anaheim Ducks or San Jose, you know, one of these teams that's clearly, I mean, in the case of the Red Wings, already actually mathematically eliminated, but, but you know, teams that, that maybe weren't expecting to play. I, mean, I think that you have to interpret what's being said here as at least a, a stronger possibility than before that you are going to play because, you know, with four centers, you know, sort of one per division, if that's how it all shakes out, it, it is a workable plan. And, you know, I think that part of this is that some of those teams – of individual T V deals and you know, this is a way for them to satisfy some of the conditions of those deals. And so if they don't play that they, they would have credits they would have to give back to, to their T V partners or money or you know there there'd be some sort of financial give and take that way. And so I think that that, you know, taking everything into account and leaks had a lot of discussions with, you know, calls with team presidents, calls with marketing managers, calls with the GMs, obviously calls with the owners and the board of governors that You know, I think taking into account the feedback from everyone that the league feels the best way is to try to complete the season. Now, what's interesting is if you have four centers, I mean, it's not going to be the season as it was originally mapped out. It'll be all interdivisional games uh, being played. So, you know, if you're a team that had 12 games left, you're going to you know, have some combination of games against your division, you know, equaling 12 to get to that number of 82. Uh, So it's not exactly the season as originally conceived at least from my understanding of what's been discussed. But, you know, I do think that the preference is to have every team play 82 games to to help them satisfy local commitments in their markets with sponsors and and TV partners, and then also to, I guess, preserve a version of what's an 82-game season with statistics and everything, and and then you probably go right into a 16-team playoff rather than some of the expanded formats we've discussed.
2: What happens if there's an outbreak in one of these, say, four central locations? How much of a wrench is that in the plans if, if, if one of the four is immediately halted?
5: You are a expert at your craft, because to me that is the one question, burning question, most important issue, and I don't have an answer. Yeah. I, I don't know how they intend to address that, but I think that it, it will be the most important issue that they have to yeah. you know, first satisfy the players with, you know, address with. The PA, if, if, they're, if they get to a stage where they can discuss this as more of a hypothetical than it is today and, and if it looks like it can become reality, and you know, I think the public is going to want to know about that. I mean, if you live in a city like Edmonton or St. Paul, Minnesota or Raleigh or somewhere where all these players are coming, I think you're entitled to kind of understand what uh, measures the league's taking to keep the population safe You know, by bringing people, in some cases, you know, players and staff maybe that have been over in Europe uh, during this period that that the outbreak's been going on, and bringing them all into your community and testing and how that's all going to work and and you know it's it's pretty, I think, self-evident that the league would view the the idea of canceling you know going through all this training camps starting to play and then having to cancel the season. I mean that 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 almost can't happen. They have to do absolutely everything possible. I think and and. You know, given how the virus spreads, I mean, I don't know if there, there's ever going to be a 100% fail-safe plan here, but they're they're going to have to have a way of addressing this, and they're going to have to contemplate the possibility that you know one or more players or staff end up getting the virus and, and potentially passing it on in the close environment that the teams inhabit if they are able to go ahead with this. And you know, I, I don't I don't really yet know how they plan to do that, but you know, I do think it's the most important issue probably to address if if this becomes a reality. Well, and I guess it
2: underlines just the fact that I think as sports fans, we're all at home and there's nothing live on TV. And we may view the finish line as yes, sports are back on this date, but that's almost like the beginning of a second leg for this leagues, because getting back is one thing, but then to keep your league safe and healthy and running is also a, an arduous task, isn't it?
5: It is. And I think there's going to have to be some degree of risk here and, and it's going to be managed risk. It's going to be well thought out risk, but you know, again, I, I don't, think it's possible to to say 100% that that there won't be some sort of outbreak that a player or staff member involved in this won't contract the coronavirus. I don't know that they can create the conditions where that's possible. Obviously, everything will be done to a crazy degree. I think the level of sanitation, the physical distancing, the ensuring anyone that comes anywhere near in contact with the the, the teams is also observing, you know, sort of quarantine or self-isolation period. But um, you know, this, this is a bit of a silent disease too. Not everyone, or uh, virus, not everyone realizes they have it. And, and there's all mm-hmm. sorts of things that go on there with that. And so, you know, if, if they restart, there's there's going to be a possibility. Uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's going to be some possibility that, that that happens. And I think the league are, is going to have to live with that idea. And they'll probably be a little bit afraid of it because, you know, they wouldn't want to see, uh, especially a, a major outbreak that requires them to shut down the games or, stop stop playing I mean, that, that's that's sort of a, a nightmare scenario in this but you know that's that's part of what all these leagues will, will be thinking about is that they get up and running again
1: cj uh chris johnson's with us by the way or nhl insider kind of on the same wavelength the the nhl draft is is a fascinating conversation too the league doesn't know how they're going to restart but they're starting to kind of frame plans of a of a july restart and yet there's also talk about a june draft what can you tell us about what the nhl is thinking about about the 2020 nhl draft
5: well what i can tell you is that it's not particularly popular at least with the, the executives i speak with and and you know, obviously, there's no satisfying everyone with any of this stuff. I mean, we've, we've talked about pick conditions in, in the past, we've, we've, you know, even maybe a playoff format or how they, they do these final regular season games. I mean, look, there's going to be moaning probably in multiple places with whatever's decided. But, you know, I've kind of come to warm to this idea a little bit, uh, if only because, let's face it, if, if, there's a, if the season goes into September and the draft is not build mid-September or October, you know, there's all kinds of problems with that, too. You know, what you can do right now is is give yourself a little bit of certainty in the sense that you, you keep the draft somewhere near its normal position. You know, you, you've had your scouts basically preparing all year long. You know, good point that Elliott Friedman made in, in the blog he posted this week is, you know, a lot of scouts' contracts run through June 30th, and not all those, those scouts are, are going to be retained as of July 1st for teams. I mean, there's a natural turnover there, and some teams might even lose some of their scouts before what would eventually be the draft if – if they didn't to get this done, you know, in June and, you know, really what, where I guess the, the controversy could lie is that, you know, you're, you're having a draft lottery after only 85% of a regular season instead of after hundred percent. And that, you know, that could pretend, present some challenges, but, you know, I think the league is, is quite serious about trying to do this. Uh, you know, I, it was interesting that Gary Batman framed it as a trial balloon in terms of floating the idea on Tuesday on his, his call with with the general managers Tuesday afternoon um, to, to get their feedback, because as I say, I, I do know some, you know, multiple teams that are very against this idea that don't think it's fair, that, that, that just don't like the idea in any way, shape or form. Hmm. But, you know, I, I think we have to look at the larger picture here too. I mean, I personally, I, I would call myself a bit of a fair weather NFL fan. You know, I'm a fan of the Cowboys. So I usually watch them play. I don't follow the whole league. I'll probably watch the draft tonight. Because there ain't much else on in terms of, well, there's nothing else on in terms of new live actual sporting events that are happening. And a draft is not the same as an event, but it's something approximating one. And, and you know, I think that the NHL is, is looking at what the, the the hype that's built around the NFL and seeing a chance for them to, to give fans and media and, and themselves something to talk about, and something to do in June. When, you know, at that point, there probably will be very little going on. Uh, maybe other than, you know, hopefully some training camps for a July restart.
1: On that note, I'm I'm curious, because I would assume that if they were to do a June draft, it would be of a remote variety. I, I wonder how much the league is going to be paying attention to how the NFL goes about their business, how it translates to television, the pitfalls, the things that work, the things that don't work. How, how closely do you think they're paying attention tonight?
5: I think as close as you absolutely can, because... You know, in, in any event here, I think that the league has more or less accepted the idea that they're going to have to have a, a virtual draft, an online draft, what have you. Uh, you know, even if it comes in in you know an off season that that lands in the fall, if it's in June, you know, the idea of getting everyone together, or even getting a smaller, uh, you know, version of what the normal draft is together, I, I think is, you know, it's not it's not really that realistic at this point, and so you know, they can learn from the NFL. This is the first time the NFL has done it entirely online. You know, there were reports this week that, that the the dry run they did, you know, had some technical glitches and, and wasn't perfect. So it'll be, I guess, interesting to see from that standpoint, just even how it works, how it flows, what the presentation looks like. And, you know, I can tell you for sure that the, the NHL will be taking a lot of notes because, you know, one way or another, whenever they end up scheduling their draft, I think it's going to look something similar to this. And, and You know, I don't see it as the long-term solution. I guess you can never say never. I do think the league will endeavor to get back to a point where we're having a draft that looked like, you know, the ones we've come to know in recent years. But, you know, at least for the time being, you know, this is probably going to be the most effective way to to, to get it done.
1: NHL insider Chris Johnston with us on this Thursday afternoon on Pinder and Steinberg.
5: CJ, I
2: kind of feel like we're going to be into the realm of uh, a lot of conditional picks. Uh, We already talked about... um, I guess I shouldn't even say conditional, compensatory picks. So if GMs are worried about, well, we play the playoffs and that helps with seeding or there's a full season and then from there, you know, we know who's in the lottery, who isn't, you could always sprinkle more picks into the 2021 draft if, if people felt like, okay, we had these conditions about playoff success. Is that one way the NHL could solve some of the concerns of GMs or is it bigger stuff than that that they're
5: concerned about? I think that that's, that's a big part of it. Um, You know, I think some of them just don't like the idea of doing it now. I mean, look, some teams, you know, take Montreal Canadiens, for example. They have 14 draft picks in in the 2020 draft. You know, I think that they are a good example of a team that would probably be looking to turn some of those picks into roster players in a normal draft year. And, and, you know, so the the fact that that really we're not going to see roster players dealt at the draft and and that option would be off the table in June, I think it's, it's something that a lot of teams don't like. Um, you know, I, but there's there's all kinds of I guess issues with it. I mean, the the, the there's a, there's only really a few picks that I think make a huge difference in, your, in terms of conditions. I mean, any trades that have you know if the team gets to the second round, it becomes this. I mean, if, if you're doing that with the regular season not complete, it's it's hard to even make anything close to a fair ruling on that. I think you're right that the solution probably lies in adding some compensatory picks trying to make good that way. You know, one thing I've heard floated that I don't totally understand is the idea that, you know, teams that, that gave up assets at the deadline to bring in rental players, that they're going to get compensatory picks. I just don't see that happening. I mean, to me, the league is going to view that the same way as if you traded for that player and he suffered a season ending injury, uh, you know, a few games into his tenure with the new team. And, and that's unfortunate. And, and we're sorry that happened. You didn't get the value you expected at the time you traded for him. But I mean, there's risk in, in all those types of deals. I, it's going to be, a, I think, it'll be an interesting thing to watch play out because it, it's clear to me, and hearing Gary Bettman speak, that, that we're we're seeing the NHL, and let's face it, it's by necessity. It won't be just a an NHL approach to this, but but a degree of flexibility, of ingenuity, of stretching. I think the boundaries of what they're willing to do uh, to a degree that we've never seen in the past. And so, you know, probably the the, the path here to to trying to straighten things out is is to add more picks for for teams to try to address those type of concerns and then of course there'll be a few sour grapes no doubt because there's there's no way to please everyone in this and you know Gary Bebbens already said we've left we've left any idea of the perfect world behind and they're just trying to find the next version of perfect or the next best solution under difficult circumstances and and I do think everybody you know put your team allegiance aside if you can for a moment has to you know, try to embrace the idea of, of doing what they can to, to help the sport get back on its feet, to promote it, to, to, to take advantage of what will probably still be a pretty captive sports audience in June and, and do the draft then, if for no other reason than marketing reasons, to try to, you know, get some interest going again and, and you know, get the, get the idea that things are starting to resume to something a little bit more like normal and on the path to recovery. Last one for you, quick one.
2: Uh, Elvis Lickens gets inked not long after Eunice Corpusalo gets inked. They both have two-year deals with uh, yes, matching term, but not matching cap. It just a thought on the tandem, the platoon, and uh, what's been accomplished here by Yarmo Kekalainen.
5: Well, it's it's a cheap tandem at six point eight million, and it was you know a tandem if you look at the numbers this year that performed pretty well. I would suggest to you it's probably not a coincidence the order these were done uh just with Corpus Allo being probably the more proven commodity at this point certainly in terms of tenure in the NHL and and his deal comes in at 2.8 million Lickens, who's played 30 odd games as an NHL starter uh you know gets 4 million on his deal but you know that's reflective of the fact that the Blue Jackets were very very high on Merzlikins he was viewed as the best goalie outside the NHL before he got here he struggled initially uh, in his time with the Blue Jackets but then was you know one of the great uh, bright light to their season after Corpus Howell got injured and so you know they've taken i guess a little bit of a calculated bet on giving him 4 million dollars after 30 odd NHL games but um you know all in all it's it, i think it's a pretty cost effective tandem and i expect it to be Elvis's job as the number one uh you know assuming he can pick up where he left off when we get back thanks for
2: chatting always enjoy it uh enjoy i guess whatever a weekend looks like in the pandemic for you we'll chat again on Tuesday
5: Sounds good, boys. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks, DJ. Chris
2: Johnson,
1: Johnson, NHL Insider. Interesting stuff there. Like, there's some uh,
2: lots, 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 lots.
1: The NHL draft in June, before a season is finished, potentially, is is just fascinating to me because it's so different than what we're used to. Well, it's
2: exactly what we are used to in terms of the time frame, but to have it before regular season's done is absolutely crazy. Now equally crazy was the first time I heard, oh yeah, we'll do the draft in the fall. It's like, what? Like you'll already have theoretically European leagues started with like, we see a lot of times you'll draft this 18 year old or 17 year old out of the top league in Finland or Sweden, maybe even mm-hmm. the KHL, those players are already playing. So they have to have contracts in play. I mean, that's just one angle that I had never even thought about what CJ brought up, which was that, okay I'm a team that gave up some picks but I've got a really deep roster I'm going to turn some roster players into more picks in the weekend of the draft and that's how I'll recoup some of my loss. I I never even conceived of that because you could you could have done that in September but you can't in June if there's still a regular season to go and you pass the trade deadline so I mean it's it's the other thing that I wonder about is you're not probably going to be in a spot where you have to make a call on the draft and you know they're not going to say on June 20. Okay, we're doing it June 25. You're going to need a lot of lead-up time. When the time they make the decision, we are we aren't doing it in June, they probably can't 100% say they are going to finish the regular season or not. I mean, that's there's a whole lot of things to figure out here, and whether it's in June or in the fall, a lot of logistical webs to untie.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, just take a look at all the uh, all the prep time that needed to be. In place for the NFL draft to go about their business, they've got 32 teams when the NHL's got 31. So to be able to have all the technical, uh, all the, the technical stuff figured out, all the IT stuff figured out, um, and then to be able to broadcast it on television and, and Sportsnet to do it or the NHL Network to do it, like there's there are so many things that would need to be planned for, which is why you need that lead time. They'd almost need to set it, being like, look, we don't know if the league's going to come back if we're going to be playing again this year but we do know the draft's going to be in june we'll deal with it and let's go about our business that way um yeah i'm uh, fascinated to see where that story goes in the coming weeks here thanks to chris johnston he joins us tuesdays and thursdays a busy show for you with kelly rudy joining us around the corner we have yet to catch up with the former la king's goaltender and the uh, television color voice of the Calgary flames kelly rudy is going to join us around the corner As pinder and steinberg well underway. sports that 960 the fan
0: Pinder and Steinberg in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960 The Fan.
1: As we roll on through this quarantine and this pandemic shutdown, we've got an opportunity to catch up with uh, plenty of our uh, good friends in the media world. One of them we have yet to catch up with, and we will uh, make that correction right now, is Calgary Flames television color analyst and uh, former NHL goaltender Kelly Rudy, who joined us in the program right now. Hello, Mr. Rudy. How are you?
6: well pat and ryan thanks for the invite i've got to tell you you've got me out of uh, spring cleaning how's that sound i had orders late (laughs) last week from headquarters translation my lovely wife daughter that we're going to do spring cleaning this week and so i've uh, been tasked with trying to clean up my office and uh, i must say it's going quite well but uh, i would rather be in toronto guys uh, watching hockey and commenting on the nhl playoffs but As I just heard, I listened to you guys for the last hour. Uh, We had that, Ron had that conversation with the commissioner last night, and you guys know me. I'm by nature a positive person, and I like that conversation. It gave me a glimmer of hope, and because that has been tough to uh, sort of accept the last uh,
1: number. That's kind of where I am, too. Like, it it just, it, it added a little bit more, optimism excitement whatever the word you want to use and then i've been i've been kind of like you throughout this whole thing kellen that i've I've been trying to to stay positive knowing how serious the situation we're in right now i that 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 certainly helped with the positivity
6: absolutely and and the one thing well many things last night in the conversation with ron that the commissioner said but you know when if you know the commissioner he's about as thoughtful a human being as you can ever find. He's incredibly bright, but I didn't hear anything like, okay, there's this roadblock or there's this hurdle or, you know, it's too daunting of a task. And and it was all about we're going to try and find a solution to every single hurdle that we come up against and, and, you know, in the industry to hear that kind of discussion, because as you guys know, in the previous lockouts, the commissioner has painted a, a fairly bleak picture at times and there was no optimism. And, and so when, you know, he sits there with Ron and you start to hear, you know, a little bit of, you know, what might be happening behind the scenes and, you know, they've thought through everything, including what, uh, what you might need in those four cities and how difficult that task would be. You know, I go back to just what my livelihood is and the, the television broadcasting and how difficult that would be. And, uh, so, And you're right. Just before the commercial break, Pat, you talked about how that will affect radio, television, everything. And I think the number one thing that all of us, whether you're a fan of the game, a player, a manager, a broadcaster, whether it's radio or television, we know one thing. There's changes happening, and it's going to look different. It's going to sound different, and we all have to be willing to uh, roll with the changes.
1: Yeah. What – what has this uh, What has this self isolation been like for you? Tell us uh, Tell us about a quarantine life for Kelly Rudy.
6: Okay, well, I'm going to go back to the first weekend, and I did a, a tweet on this, so some of the people may have heard the story. Uh, I'm like everybody else. My family's like everybody else. Uh, luckily, nobody's been infected in my family yet, but our thoughts go out to everybody that has been affected. But it's very stressful, like emotionally uh mentally um and i think that all of our families are dealing with certain things as an example the first weekend i noticed my wife donna uh very uptight and she's pretty laid back and on sunday we we're having you know we didn't know the severity of the pandemic we thought we had an idea but we we're still going to have everybody over our three daughters our son-in-law our grandson our other two daughters with uh, their fiancés over for Sunday dinner. And I noticed throughout the day that my wife was glued to the television, changing channels, and it was all about the pandemic and the news of the day and how it was changing, it seemed, like hourly. And next day she woke up early in the morning, I think 5.15 or something, and, and she had great pain in her chest, and she honestly thought she was having a heart attack. And so we ended up going to the hospital, and luckily for her it all checked out okay, but... Because of the stress and how it was affecting her, she ended up getting shingles. And so my point is that we're all going through something. Nobody's off the hook. Everybody has something, whether you're feeling you know, the uncertainty of uh, what we're going through, the financial stress for so many people. Um, nobody's excluded, and that's why, you know, I just think, you know, have an have a, uh, open heart to everybody.
1: Very well said. That's uh, very well said. I appreciate you sharing that, Kelly. Is uh, Kelly Rudy is with us uh, from Hockey Night in Canada? from uh, your Calgary Flames telecast on Sportsnet Television and uh, former Los Angeles Kings goaltender. And, and it's funny, uh, I mentioned that, Kelly, because uh, on this date in 1993, uh, you and the Los Angeles Kings lost to the Calgary Flames in round two of a series that you would eventually win in six games. Um, the Flames had a 2-1 series lead and you guys won three in a row. It's We've been doing a lot of this date in Flames history and this state and nhl history and yeah you the, that that 1993 run to the stanley cup final for for you and the la kings it started with a six game series went over the flames
6: okay so i have many memories of that series and uh, some highs and lows uh, i was the starting goalie i went through the most difficult regular season of my life uh, i was uh, in a ditch for basically two months i had uh, some sort of episode in milwaukee one of the neutral site games that uh i'm sure was uh related to mental health um and i couldn't get myself out of the ditch until luckily for me my head coach barry melrose went to bat for me went way out of the limb and uh hooked me up with tony robbins and because of the, my work individually with tony i was able to dig myself out of that ditch but going into the playoffs i was the starting goalie we won game one i believe it was a saturday afternoon in calgary um the next game, we absolutely got hammered. I, I can't recall the score, but I believe it was something like 9-2 or something like that. Uh, went back home and lost, and uh, Barry Melrose once again made the wise decision to go uh, switch goaltenders, and he put in Rob Stauber, our, our other goaltender. Rob was magnificent at home, uh, perhaps one of his best NHL games uh, ever. Uh, we rolled back into Calgary. It was a high-scoring game, I believe, uh, uh, I can't recall the score, but it's eight five or something. Uh, I remember Wayne Gretzky made maybe the the greatest uh, dump-in pass I've ever seen off the end boards. He was near center. Luke Robitaille came screaming in on the left wing and hammered a puck past. Well, Mike Vernon was out because he had an ankle injury. We went back home, closed out Calgary. Another high-scoring game. Mike, of course. Uh, uh, he got in that game, but I don't think he should have played because he was so uh, affected by the ankle injury. And so how was that for uh, off the top of my head? I think I did pretty well.
1: Yeah, that was pretty good. That was uh, that was a pretty good recollection of that series. Well done. Um, and, and that was – I'm, I'm curious as to when – that 93 run so it started with a six game series went over the flames you you go yeah. on you beat vancouver you beat toronto in seven and then go up against montreal at w- what point did you think that okay this this could be this could be the time this could be a run that that maybe this group has something in them
6: oh i remember very clearly um a really big moment in those playoffs and uh we played we lost game one in vancouver rob played again then i got the net uh Uh, Next game, we won that game in Vancouver to even the series. We went back home. We won a close game. uh, So we had the 2-1 lead. And then we lost, again, another big score, something like 7-2 at home. So we're going back to Vancouver, tied 2-2 in a series. And uh, this was a pivotal moment in uh, Kings history and also in my career because I knew the severity, the magnitude of it. Uh, I was still reeling. I readily accepted that the franchise may have lost some confidence in me because of the struggles. So the night before the game in Vancouver, I went for a long walk just by myself and trying to uh, clear my head. uh, And, uh, man alive, we had a great game. We ended up winning 4-3 in double overtime. Gary Shuchuk scored. Um, He was on a line with Luke Robitaille and Yari Curry. Uh, I had an excellent night that night. We went back home uh, the next night and or, uh, yeah, two nights later and closed out Vancouver. So we are now going into Toronto uh, for the conference finals. But that game five versus Vancouver, that was a, an incredibly uh, important moment in my personal career and for the LA Kings. And, and I believe that because we withstood that test and uh, that bad, bad beating uh, in game four at home, that we really proved a lot about ourselves.
1: Do you uh, like you uh, you go to Toronto all the time? You're there every weekend during the hockey season, yeah. and then you're there for two yeah. months uh, during the uh, during the, the playoffs. And do you still get a hard time for Game Seven against the Leafs? Because not only did you rob the Leafs of a of a shot to go to the Stanley Cup final, but you also robbed them of a head to head series with the Habs in the Stanley Cup final.
6: Oh yeah, I get grief from uh, people, and and you know what. That's a real compliment, right? When uh, when they hate you, still uh, years later, right? That's that's like when you're in a visiting building and people boo you. I mean, that's the greatest compliment in the world because you're like, well, first of all, that they even know you and that they happen to think that you're uh, you're an impa- important factor in the game. That's that's like the greatest compliment an athlete can have. That uh, wow, okay, you you might think I'm pretty good, so you're going to try and get on me and throw me off, which it never happens. But uh, yeah, and so. Um, you know, it, it is funny, though, right? The Leafs fans, and uh, they're always trying to find excuses. It was uh, because of the missed call on Gretzky, on Gilmore, and that's the reason why Toronto lost. They never looked that they had a Game 7 on home ice in- and <laughs> to close this out. They, they're very uh, – uh, they, they conveniently overlook that fact.
1: He's Kelly Rudy, uh, Calgary Flames color analyst on television, former LA Kings goaltender, and he joins us here on Pinder and Steinberg today.
2: Take us back to that, like more on that series, Kelly. Like, What was the temperature like? I mean, LA at the time, I don't know that hockey, you know, it had to be near peak popularity in that market and just was the thing to do. Celebrities were there. And meanwhile, Toronto, the biggest hockey market in the world. I mean, what was that like going back and forth?
6: Oh, it was magical. It was, uh, um, you know, just as you said, the one thing that was, I think we got used to uh, playing in L.A., uh, because when Wayne came there in 88, I came in February of 89, uh, it, was, it was weird seeing all the celebrities, but then we became so used to it because they were around at every single game. And I'm not talking B-list celebrities. It was everybody that was anybody at that time. They were going to L.A. King games, and they were in our dressing room. Uh, before and after games, uh, which was different, but we had—I'm uh, not exaggerating, guys. Morning skates. We had the Anaheim Angels, the baseball team, because there are a number of them that really loved hockey, so they would come out for morning skate, and that's—that's that's how we were trying to build the game because it was just a, a weird existence. So. That night I might be playing, it doesn't matter, I might have been playing Boston at home or Chicago or Vancouver, and in the morning skate I have five of the uh, Anaheim Angels shooting on me in the morning skate, so you have to get used to uh, uh, a different kind of uh, hockey uh, environment there, but then when we went into that Toronto series anyways, uh, there was... Uh, no urgency by our team at all in game one we were we were terrible. Um, in fact, I think Toronto had twenty some shots on us in the third period. They went on to win four one but the the play that changed the temperature of that series was late in the third period with Doug Gilmore crossing over in our own zone. He got caught in the tracks, and Marty McSorley absolutely nailed him, which uh, was the response was Wendell Clark went after Marty. They had an incredible fight, and then all of a sudden we had a series now now we're awake and there was pure hatred already uh, so started game two you know want I remember about that game 2, guys as well uh, it was two two in the third period with ball minutes left and Thomas sands from scored a goal which I, I, I was actually quite surprised at the other end of the ice that uh, Felix Platvin had let that one in because Felix was such a great goaltender but Throughout the third period, guys, I was really uh fading. I rarely did it happen, but maybe three, four or five times in a season where you're out of gas and maybe because of all the travel all that but i was I had the cold sweats going in the third period, like literally the cold sweats and Wendell Clark had a chance on me with about seven or seven minutes to go, and he ripped a shot high and wide to my stick side. It barely missed the net by an inch or two, and I'm sure some of the fans in Maple Leaf Gardens thought, wow, Rudy must be really good because he barely moved. He must have known it was going wide. Well, the fact (laughs) of the matter is I had no energy. I couldn't muster up anything. And luckily for me, I don't believe they had any more shots after that or if they did, nothing was dangerous. And I survived and I felt great after that. But that was just an odd moment. And, of course, I've never forgotten it because of the impact it could have had in changing the series.
2: Man, it's funny. We had Jordan Leopold on, I want to say, two days ago. He's back in Minnesota with his family. He retired in his early 30s. But he talked about the toll of that 4 run with the Flames. He said it took three or four years before he even felt like a normal hockey player again because of all that damage done. And you might not be speaking as much physical as you know, all the other stuff that's involved with the series. But, I mean, I think we take for granted as fans just the damage and the toll that some of these long playoff runs can, can have on players.
6: Oh, 100%. And, and you know, with uh, to Jordan's point, and we're not looking for sympathy or we're not asking for comfort or, uh, oh, oh, woe is me. But the fact of the matter is, if you're going to play and go through a grind like that, it's going to have an effect on you uh, physically, and if you're going to play a long time in the – you're going to have uh, catastrophic injuries that you'll have to live with the rest of your life. Like, I, I can't, I couldn't believe, I think it was about at least two years after I retired, and I started to wake up in the morning, and I started to feel pretty good, and I was like, what's going on? I haven't I haven't woken up one day in the last 14, 15, 16 years where I, my body hasn't ached, and all of a sudden, I'm waking up, and I'm going, wow, I wonder if other people feel this good now when they wake up in the morning, I kind of like this feeling. And so that was kind of uh, refreshing.
2: Yeah. Uh, wow. Hey, um, I don't know if you saw it. But I think it was Marty Brodeur. Someone had to call him up on The Athletic about uh, retired players and the pain they're in. He's got a lot of numbness on his blocker wrist and the inside of his catching hand. Does that relate to you or is that a little different than uh, than what you've experienced post-goal? He certainly had uh, a ton of pucks over that incredibly long career he had
6: absolutely so i was a part of that uh, article scott crookshank from calgary here wrote it and so i had a real long discussion with uh, scott going through my issues and like i said every single guy has them but uh, my greatest uh i guess uh injury my catastrophic injuries that i'm talking about uh would be my ankles so my ankles some days i wake up and my ankles decide to cooperate and we have a good day and some days They don't. In particular, my left ankle, I blew that up uh, the day before training camp in 1995, my last year with L.A., and uh, it's bothered me ever since. Um, Some days are good. Some days I can't barely walk, and uh, I'll I'll tell you this. I had no idea my other ankle was uh, uh, badly damaged, but I go to San Jose. I'm, I'm a free agent, and uh, so we kind of agree to terms and, but then Dean Lombardi, the general manager says, okay, so the last piece of business is we know your ankle injury. So you have to pass a medical. And so Dr. Ting was your orthopedic surgeon with the sharks at the time. So I am sweating bullets. Like I, I, I know the severity of my left ankle injury and I'm thinking, please, 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 please pass this test somehow. And uh, so The exam's over. Dr. Ting says to me, okay, Kelly, I have some good news and some bad news. What do you want to hear first? I go, well, give me the good news. He goes, I'm going to pass you. The bad news is your so-called good ankle is way worse than your so-called bad ankle, so Mm. you are going to have terrible ankles for the rest of your life until they ever come up with uh, ankle replacement surgery, which I've looked into, and I don't think it's to the level that uh, I want right now. I don't think the technology is quite there, so... One day, I hope to, uh, to get that uh, fixed.
2: Kelly Rudy is with us here on Pinner and Steinberg Sportsnet 960, the fan.
1: So one last one for you, Kel, and that's just on the uh, team that you now cover on a full-time basis, and that's the Calgary Flames. We don't know uh, when, if they're going to return, but uh, just a thought on how the team was trending prior to the pause.
6: Okay, so I'm going to go back to a conversation. I, I, Pat, I'm not sure if you were on the interview, but I know, Ryan, you were. Uh, late January, when Don and I had just returned from the Cannon, Cannon Ascus Lodge. Spa. And the outdoor spas and all that. And I was, I was having the conversation with you, and I was saying, you know, here's my sort of slant of the flame season. They've had a lot of highs, a lot of lows, but they had all sorts of uh, sort of Issues they had to deal with, and they were overcoming every sort of conflict. And I thought that might be a good thing that they had never given in to the, like the the li- line I like to say is "Oh woe is me" and and so on, feel sorry for themselves. Every sort of uh, conflict they faced, they got through it. And I believe if they were to make the playoffs, that they were going to be a stronger team mentally than they were versus uh, the Avalanche last year. I couldn't believe how quickly they folded last year that was shocking to me because i thought they uh, they had played so well during the regular season i thought they they could put up with things but they just couldn't whenever there was uh, uh, a hurdle in their way man they just crumbled which shocked the heck out of me but that's why going into these playoffs playoffs i was pretty optimistic for their chances i thought they were a battle tested to a certain degree and they weren't last year
1: Appreciate the time, Kelly. Good to catch up with you, my friend. Stay safe, and uh, hopefully we uh, see you on TV very, very soon talking about anything other than a pandemic, but probably hockey would be the best <laughs> thing. Uh, it's great to catch up with you, my friend. Thanks, okay, Kelly.
6: Thanks for having me on, guys. And I just want to do, I don't want to be corny, but I, I finish all of my tweets with this now. Uh, I'm sending The Rudys are sending all of our love to everybody.
1: Reciprocated, my friend. Stay safe, Kel. Take care. See ya. It's Kelly Rudy on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup delivery available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 403 248 44 we do have some breaking news in the city of calgary um i, I don't know how much of a surprise this is and when you go and, and read the reasoning behind it it really becomes clear but the calgary stampede board has announced this afternoon that the 2020 edition of the calgary stampede is canceled for the first time since this became an annual event in 1923 the calgary stampede has been canceled for 2020 uh, it is not it, it is not a piece of good news that is an extreme economic hit for our city uh that is uh that that is maybe one of the most devastating pieces of news, from just a straight-up economic standpoint, that we've heard uh, specific to Calgary since this whole thing began. It's not surprising. It's the right thing to do. It, it it takes a lot of strength of leadership to be able to cancel something and not try to kick the can down the road, which I, I thought they were going to do. I thought there was actually some sense to maybe seeing if you could hold it in August or around Labor Day or something like that. But if the traveling fair that brings the rides and the the midway games and the food stalls and all that type of stuff. If they're not traveling, what are you going to do? It just its the right thing to do, Rye. Uh, it is is—it is devastating for our city. It's the first time in my lifetime, and, and I've spent every summer of my life in this city, um, the first time that I, I won't and we won't experience uh, a Calgary Stampede. It's It's awful news, but it doesn't mean it's not the right thing. Yeah, the
2: 97-year history of the Stampede, there's never been – a cancellation or a skipping of a year. So that speaks to the significance of uh, what's going on. And it's it's pretty much in line with what we've seen around the globe. Other major events on this spot in the calendar have been, um, you know, with very few exceptions, disappearing. Tennis majors and things like that have been pushed back to the fall or canceled altogether. Um, you know, we we don't have Major League Baseball games on the calendar yet, and we're – we should be a month into that season as of uh, Sunday. It's, it is not out of character for what we've seen with gatherings of a lot of people, and I think we have to remember that a typical day at the Calgary Stampede will see around a hundred thousand people down on the grounds. Yep. yep, they are huge grounds. But if we are talking about social distancing and if we are talking about trying to just you know minimize risk. It's not one where, oh, it's like golf. We'll just spread people out. That, that's not really what we're talking about here. It's, it's sad, but it uh, certainly isn't surprising at this point.
1: 2020 calgary stampede has been canceled this afternoon we're underway on pinder and steinberg we'll switch gears to the 2020 cfl draft which is a week away and a real cool conversation coming up next with a guy who's got some really good bloodlines and a guy who already has a brother playing in the nba some cfl draft talk with Deshawn sean coming up next on pinder and steinberg sportsnet 960 the fan
0: calgary guys talking
1: calgary sports
0: pinder and steinberg are only on sports Net960 The Fan
1: welcome back to the program the 2020 cfl draft is one week from today next thursday april 30th is the cfl draft uh the nfl draft starts tonight goes tomorrow and saturday as well pat steinberg along with you on this thursday afternoon and let's continue focusing in on some of the top canadian talents eligible for the 2020 cfl draft in fact the number five ranked player by the cfl scouting bureau is now on the line with us we're uh, happy to be joined by Deshaun Brissett of the University of Virginia and the University of Richmond, a wide receiver out of both schools. Uh, thanks for doing this today, Deshaun. How are you?
7: I'm well. I appreciate you guys getting me on
1: hey it's uh it's cool to talk to you you've got uh you've got an awesome story and uh some real cool stories to delve into heading into the draft but uh, before we do that i guess just your your excitement level and and you know it's an important weekend in football this weekend then next thursday's the cfl draft just uh, what's your excitement level right now like
7: yeah man words words can't explain how excited i am i I left home at a young age for this exact weekend and and the next weekend right here. This is the time where you know it all comes to fruition. So it's an ex- it's an exciting time for me and my family for sure.
1: So what's your uh, what's your feel for this weekend? Because you know there's there's some thought that uh, you might get some NFL interest, whether your name is called or whether you get a contract when the draft is is done. What's like? Are you just kind of taking this weekend as it comes to you? Do you have any expectations?
7: Um, you know. It's it's just a waiting game, um, and I, I think for me specifically, it'll be towards the end, towards the end of the draft, realistically, that anything will happen. So, you know, I'm just kind of waiting and hoping for the best.
1: Do you uh, like? Will it be? Uh, because you you also have the CFL that that definitely will be uh, calling your name. Like, do it, will it be a big time disappointment if if your name isn't called in the NFL draft, or, or are you prepared for any eventuality here?
7: Yeah, I'm I'm prepared. I'm prepared for anything. Obviously, you know, I I, I hope to get a call, but you know, I sat with myself and thought about it and you know, I think either way, I'm in a great situation, and, you know, I'm able to fall back on that on that mindset, and I think that's what's going to get me through whatever happens in the next few weeks.
1: For those who don't know, uh, your brother is playing in the NBA right now, O'Shea Brissett of the Toronto Raptors, and, and, you know, he's gone through a situation where, you know, he's he's gone from college and, and made the jump to pro. How much of you... How much have you leaned on him? I know he's your younger brother, but how much have you leaned on him and, and some advice and some experiences from him in making the jump from college to pro?
7: Yeah, I mean, you know, having him go through that is, is a blessing for me. You know, we expected him. If we expect, He had a really good freshman year at Syracuse, so we expected big things for him um, going into the NBA draft. We at least expected him to get drafted in the second, in the second round. And when that didn't happen, you know, our whole family was a little disappointed. You know, he was disappointed. Um, so he's kind of that that experience alone for me is just kind of, you know, stay patient. That's the mindset that I've been able to have throughout this whole thing. Because he he the situation he's in now, you know, is a great situation. So even though he he didn't get drafted, it worked out in the end. And I think that's what's gonna happen for me. You know, whatever happens is gonna be the best situation for me in the end.
1: You uh and and. Oh you guys are are Mississauga products and so Toronto is is home for you. It's kind of be it's got to be kind of cool to think about the the possibility of of playing in the same city. Like if the the Argos were to call your name a week from today, that uh having the opportunity to play in the same city as your brother again must be pretty cool.
7: Yeah, I have been lived under the same roof as my brother for a very long time. We wo- we both went to High school in the states and on opposite side of, opposite sides of the country, um, so that would be that would be amazing if we were able to play in the same city and live together again. That'd be pretty cool.
1: Uh, Deshawn Brissett's with us as he is one of the top. Talents available, top talents eligible for the 2020 CFL draft, number 5 ranked by the uh, CFL scouting bureau and the rankings that came out a little earlier this week. Let's let's delve into your story Dijon, because I, it's a really interesting one because here you are, you're you're getting ready to go through the NFL draft and the CFL draft, but you know, you take yourself back about 7-8 years ago, football wasn't even necessarily the number 1 thing on your mind. Like basketball was was the sport that you were most pursuing in high school, right?
7: Yeah, um, that that's exactly right. I didn't I didn't really know much about football at all. I remember when I went to Lake Forest Academy, which was my high school in Illinois, my head coach, Robin Backe, he asked me, do you, he said, son, do you know what the Big Ten is? And I really had no idea, like, what Big Ten football was at all. I couldn't name one team in there. So I definitely came a long way. Um, my brother and I, obviously basketball was our main thing. I did a lot of track as well, doing the triple jump. And it wasn't until... You know, my later years in high school when my basketball offers were D two and D three, but my my football offers were D one. That's kind of when I made the switch to the football field and took that a little more serious.
1: When you decided to go to Lake Forest, is it true that you uh, you went there to play ball? But they were like, "Yeah, but you got to play on our football team too."
7: Yeah, yeah. Back then, there was a rule like you had to you had to play three sports. Um, so they told me, yeah, you can come here and play basketball all you want, but you're going to have to play football. That was one of the causes of me going there. And so I did that. And I did well, but I didn't even really know what I was doing until <laughs> I started to take it a little more seriously junior and senior year.
1: So tell us about leaving home so early. Like, you know, here you are, you're, you're in Mississauga, and, and you're growing up in Canada, and now you're leaving to Chicago or the Chicago area to go to high school. What's, what's that experience like?
7: Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, it wasn't it wasn't sad or you know there were no tears. It was it was just kind of like my mom and my dad. We kind of understood that it was something that needed to be done in order to get to the next level or just to get to where I wanted to be in sports. And it was a it was a really quick transition. I, I think I took a visit to Lake Forest and you know made the decision then that I was going to go. Like it wasn't a long thought process. It wasn't like I didn't really weigh pros and cons. I missed my friends in Mississauga for sure, but. It was kind of like a. My mom was like, you know, we got to do this. My dad's like, we got to do this, and we just kind of did it. It was more like a business move than anything.
1: And so, tell us a little bit more about Lake Forest Academy. It's a it's a top prep school. It's prep school academically. It's a prep school athletically. Like, tell us a little bit more about uh, because we we don't necessarily have things quite like this in Canada. Uh, Lake Lake Forest Academy. What was that experience like?
7: Yeah, I mean, so I think I was, like, 15 or 16 at the time when I left. And it's a boarding school, so we have – we students live on campus. We have we had male dorms and, and girl dorms, um, and there were commuter students who lived in Lake Forest that drove to school every day. We had a, a serious, strict dress code. We had to wear a shirt and a tie, tuck our shirt in, and, you know, we had to do that every day. And it was a really good, like, academically rigorous school, um and you know, our sports facility it was like a little college. Like we had our own like sports facility. We had, you know, hot tubs, cold tubs, just like any college. We had our prep hockey team was really good. Like just imagine a college but just a smaller version of it. I think we had like four hundred students total. I graduated huh. with hundred and twenty five other people
1: very cool uh deshaun Brissett's with us um from the university of virginia and the university of richmond uh ahead of the 2020 cfl draft it's funny because you go and and look you up online you're kind of lit you're listed as university of virginia but that's that's not where you spent the bulk of your ncaa career the bulk of it was spent four years at the university of richmond also in virginia so tell us about so from mississauga to chicago and now virginia tell us about how you made the decision to become a university of richmond spider
7: yeah um a lot of my all of my offers actually football were d one AA, fcs um and i was really attracted by the combination of academics and athletics at richmond they were really prestigious you know academic school a lot like lake forest um and I was really, I was really intrigued by Richmond's business school. Um, I knew that's something I wanted to do, and I, I ended up majoring in business there. Uh, and the B school was really good. I learned a lot, and I minored in environmental studies. So that, that honestly was the, was the driver for me going to Richmond. Was the academics on top of, you know, academics first, and then football was was really good. Like the competition in the CAA was really good too. So that's why I chose there.
1: So, how do you go, like, how do you make the jump from FCS to Div 1 and, and University of Virginia? You played five years in college. I know the story, I know how, but why don't you explain this? How do you end up getting a fifth year of eligibility, and, and how did you make the transfer to the University of Virginia?
7: Yeah, so unfortunately, uh, my last year at Richmond, you know, I was doing really well as a receiver, but I got hurt. I, um, I got a Jones fracture in my right foot. Um, so that opened up another year of eligibility for me as a, as a medical redshirt. And so, you know, I think around that time they introduced the transfer portal. And, you know, I thought I might shop around and see what interest there would be at the Power 5 level. And Virginia ended up offering me. And I was, you know, I thought about it. I thought about staying for sure. But then my thought process was if I can have, you know, half the production I did at Richmond, you know at the power five level at the, in the ACC that I could in, increase my draft stock so so I went ahead and and you know made that bet on myself and and ended up at Virginia
1: and and pretty good pretty good season like you had a that, that was a for a fourth year of football you, you end up in the ACC title game and for you pretty solid season tell us about your one year plan uh, with the Cavaliers
7: yeah, I mean, it was it was a great experience for sure. I mean, being a part of that team was pretty cool. It didn't quite go the way I planned uh, stats-wise. Um, you know, I was battling that foot a little bit at the beginning of the season, so it was a little bit of an uphill battle for playing time. You know, the, the team started off 4-0, and the receivers that were in were just doing amazing. So um, it was kind of hard for me football-wise, but, you know, on the field. Off the field, it was great. The guys are great. Um, and you know, being in that atmosphere, you know, we sold out our stadium almost every game, and going to places like Bank of America to play Clemson, like those were crazy experiences for sure.
1: That uh, that experience in the ACC title game, going up against a team like Clemson, like that, and and not to say that you didn't have intense games from playing at Richmond, but that had it must have been a whole new level for you.
7: Oh, yeah. It, it, was, it was crazy for sure to think we are playing in an NFL stadium and we packed it out, you know what I mean? And, and even at home in Ascot Stadium in Charlottesville, you know, we beat, when we beat FSU and we beat Virginia Tech for the first time in like 15, 16 years, all the fans stormed the field. It was like, it was crazy to, to see that, you know, it was crazy to witness that for sure
1: couple more with deshaun brissette as he gets set for the 2020 nfl draft 2020 cfl draft uh just uh like have, have you have you thought about making the jump to professional football have you thought about what it's going to be uh what it's going to be like at the next level and how much more difficult the competition's going to be
7: oh yeah Uh definitely thought about that for sure you know every level you go up the competition just gets stiffer and it's not. It's not as much about athleticism at this point. This is all from the shoulders up now. So I think what's going to change is going to be a lot more film study, a lot more taking care of my body. Um, you know, the the in, like football IQ is going to have to be at the highest level. You know, because in high school you could you could run around kids. Um, in college you can kind of get away with that. You know, if you're a super athlete. But even then you gotta you gotta focus more on watching film. But now it's even more. Everybody's elite. So you know you gotta change your mindset for sure.
1: You uh, so what is uh, what does the next few days look like for you? How will you take in the NFL draft? How will you take in the CFL draft? What's that? What's that going to be like from your standpoint?
7: Man, I I'm not going to change anything. I I go and I run every morning, um, and I try to get my workouts in as much as I can at home. You know, with with push ups and sit ups and the little weights that I have, I get my stuff from Target Training online. So. I'm not gonna stop doing any of that, and you know I'll watch for for my friends who are also in the draft to you know to see what happens with them. And I'm just gonna you know just, just sit and hope for best.
1: Have you uh have you thought about what it might be like being drafted in two leagues in maybe less than a week's time?
7: You know that I have thought about. Has that ever been done before? I don't, has that, like I don't think it has
1: it's uh it may, maybe a few times and you know sometimes it, it, it it's rare though like it, and usually if you're drafted in the NFL you're drafted a whole lot later in the CFL just because of the um the the chances to come and play in the, the Canadian Football League right away drop a ton right. if you're drafted in the NFL but it's uh like you you're you're going to have it sure does seem like you're going to have some options to sort through here is is that is that exciting is that stressful like you're going to have some some different and and pretty big decisions to make here in the next say 72 hours or so
7: Yeah man I'll tell you what that's that's a great problem to have I don't think I don't think I'm going to be stressed at all I'm just going to soak it in and just appreciate the fact that I even get to think about that you know what I mean Yeah Not a lot of people do <laughs>
1: No, it's true. It's very cool. Well, hey, it, it's uh, it, it's a really cool story, Deshaun. Uh, good luck this weekend. Good luck in the uh, with the prospects in the CFL draft, and, and enjoy it. This seems like it's uh, going to be a really fun time for you, so have fun. Thanks for doing this with us this afternoon.
7: No doubt. I appreciate you taking the time.
1: That is uh, Deshaun Brissett, uh, University of Virginia, University of Richmond. He's the number five ranked player by the CFL Scouting Bureau ahead of their draft one week from today. He's getting some uh, absolute uh, interest in the NFL. Does he go as a day two or day three player in the NFL draft? Does he sign a priority contract uh, if he's not drafted immediately following? All those things are very much in front of him now. Uh, and then from there, is is the NFL the route that he takes right away? Is the CFL the route? that he takes right away. A lot of things uh, ahead for a guy like Deshaun Brissett and his brother O'Shea Brissett uh, just coming off his rookie season with the Toronto Raptors in the NBA. Deshaun joins us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar Guest Hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup delivery available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 403-248-3344. Tough news in the city today with the news that the 2020 Calgary Stampede has been canceled, not postponed, but uh the most devastating flood in in, in our history didn't do that uh, we were able to go forward with the 2013 edition. But the 2020 edition of the Calgary Stampede will not go forward uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic. You understand it; it's the right thing to do. It's it's an absolute. Uh, it's another absolute kick in the teeth to this city's economy, and and it's a tough one. Like as as a born and bred Calgarian, this is uh, something I've never seen before, and that something is tough to swallow. But just because it's tough to swallow, and just because it's it's really a it's a sad piece of news, a devastating piece of news. The same time, doesn't mean it's not the right thing. It, it is the right thing to do. Like this is something that is unprecedented. This is something that we've never experienced before, and this is something that we have to take seriously. If the Stampede wants to have an opportunity of doing a 2021 event, they probably had to cancel 2020. And yeah, you know what? You don't like to break a streak. You don't like to say that this is the first time it's been canceled, but. This is the first time for a lot of things in all of our lives, and this is the, the right decision being made by the Stampede Board today, is as disappointing and as devastating as uh, the news is for the city. We'll take a break, come back, uh, take a stroll down memory lane. This date in Flames history, and at the top of the hour, it is our 2001 NHL Redraft. It's Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan.
0: Pinder and Steinberg continues on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Let's go back in time and celebrate the amazing history of
3: the Calgary Flames. Today in Flames History, starts now. On April 23rd, 1996, the Calgary Flames continued their series with the Chicago Blackhawks. And while the game didn't go their way, it was a big night for young Jerome McGinley. He scored his first career goal in the NHL at just 18 years old. Here's Corey Millen dancing
2: again.
1: scores! There's Jerome McGinley's first NHL regular season goal.
3: It was the opening goal for the Flames, but Chicago came back with a goal from Jeremy Roenick to tie the game. It would stay tied until the third overtime when Joe Murphy would score to knock the Flames out of the postseason. But this game will no doubt be best remembered as the start of a Gimla's prolific rise through the NHL scoring ranks.
0: Today in Flames history, celebrating 40 years of Flames hockey in Calgary on Sportsnet 960 The Fan.
1: And Pinder, as you have... um mentioned uh, a couple of times that uh, triple overtime win for the blackhawks you still blame one person in particular for that oh
2: play. trent bleeping yanni trent yanni what are you doing trent yanni trent yanni trent yanni now it was uh three nothing in the series they weren't going to come back and win four straight i don't imagine but still feel free to not cough up the puck in your own you know high danger area after curling behind your net to uh Put the game-winning goal on a platter and head right to the golf course. You may as well be wearing Titleist gear if you're thinking that way. Um, yeah, I, there, there's a very small section of this community that uh, can't even hear the words Trent Yanni without getting frustrated. I think I might be a part of that, Pat. I, I was at that game. I remember it being late. I remember having school the next day. I remember thinking this amazing how late we're up. Jerome had scored two points in two games. Um, Trent Yanni. Ruined it all. It all had to school the next day, reality sunk back in, and it would be a long, long uh, drought without playoff hockey that uh, started the following day. Joe Murphy's
1: Murphy's goal in triple overtime that won that series for the Blackhawks was the last time the Flames would allow a playoff goal in uh, quite some time uh, because that was in 1996. They didn't make the playoffs again until 2005. It is hard to wrap your head around uh, that it it was that long of a drought in this city without playoff hockey. The Flames were, like, for almost a decade there, they were a a very much perennial also-ran. By the time February-March hit, you just knew it wasn't going to happen, and there were some... There were some good things that happened in there. Um, Jerome McGinley being the chief part of that. The, the Theron-Flurry trade brought them Robin Regeer, which was huge. Yep. Um, so there were definitely some, some big moments in there. But, I mean, man... You had Flurry winning scoring titles and 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 putting up 100 points. Val Valbuena had a couple of good years. You had Aginla making his debut. Um, there was the the Fred Brathwaite story was really cool. But I'm trying to think like what other good moments were there during that seven year age for the Calgary well, Flames? There weren't a lot of them.
2: Maybe the greatest moment in that spell because Jerome had, had arrived already, right? Um, but you're right. He he went from two games in the playoff, first two NHL games of his career, into a superstar scoring 50 winning a Maurice Richard uh, trophy. But how about Roman Turek getting hurt? That was a pretty big moment for the franchise in the 03 season because it allowed it forced them to go out
1: and get uh, Mika. Fair. Well, remember how, like, remember Turek when he first got here? Good start, got a contract, never was able to really uh, get back to that form until Kippersoff got hurt that same yeah. season you're referencing. Kipper got hurt in the, you know, fairly early on in his tenure with the Flames in his first season with the Flames, and Turek had to go back in, and he played really well when he went back in. The Flames were still winning games, and it had it had some people wondering whether or not they should go back to Kiprasov when when he's healthy again. Now, I mean, in hindsight, those oh. were silly conversations, oh. but, uh, yeah, there just there wasn't a whole lot. You know, Mika Kiprasov getting here in, what, December 03 and... Trent Yanni coughing that puck up and Joe Murphy scoring that goal in triple overtime. Uh, those are kind of like bookmark things for the Calgary Flames with very little good in between there. The, the Jerome McGinley yeah. scoring 50, that was a big one. Uh, Freddie Brathwaite's story was awesome, and, and some of the moments that he gave Flames fans were pretty cool. Flurry gave them some some big moments, but it is a pretty dark time in Calgary Flames history.
2: 44 shutouts for Mika. Career save percentage of 912. Career goals against under two and a half. 623 games. That, uh, yeah. We need him back. I know where this isn't what this segment's about, but let's get Mika to the Rafters. If we can accomplish anything before the end of this pandemic, let's find some upper executives of the Flames, tie them up in our basements until they agree to put a date on the calendar for Mika's jersey to the Rafters. Let's do this.
1: One of the things that I know they're worried about is will Mika show up if they do right. that. That, that?
2: I is, totally that's... get it. And it, it jives with everything that we've heard about <laughs> Mika since ever, uh, including, you know, I, I the rep Warner was telling stories on the morning show about him suiting up uh, with an alias and playing as a skater in like old man hockey in like Southern Alberta for a while. After was, yeah. But Mika was here this season. I remember being in Australia in a bar in like middle of the day, was it the Canucks on a Saturday? When was it that he was in this, the saddle dome? They cut to him on the Jumbotron or the Flames Energy Board, whatever you call it, in a suite, and the place went bananas. Like, there he is. Lock him in, like, handcuff him to a, a document, do something, put a date on the calendar, buy him a calendar for 20. 20- 21. Let's do this. We got to get this done.
1: You uh, also neglected to mention something. Uh you mentioned that uh, Jerome Ginla won the Maurice Richard trophy. Uh he also won the Hart trophy that year. Um I know that it doesn't nope. officially show up in the record books as no, such but he did. Um well, the most yeah. egregious voting that we've ever i, I have ever seen in terms of award voting when Harris. one guy from montreal didn't even have him on his ballot and that's why he didn't win the Hart trophy Lost he didn't have to have him number one but to not have him on your ballot come on and that's why yeah. again didn't win and jose theodore did win the Hart trophy that year
2: and the last Pearson was not close which is the one that the players vote upon if i recall so it's too bad. And you know what? It's that stupid wording of that trophy that I think also just puts a little fuel on the fire. Like I understand that there's no justifying what that Montreal beat reporter did in terms of voting, not even having Jerome on the ballot when he was the most dominant skater in the game that season. But like if Jerome's in the playoffs that year, you, I'm sure some second place votes turn into first place votes. Like this notion mm-hmm. that you can't win that award if your team misses the playoffs is so crazy Just like, well, I mean, he's got some good teammates. I mean, do you have to be a a dominant player on a mediocre team to win that award? Is that what? Is that like the? We've got to get rid of this crappy wording with the heart.
1: Which is what most valuable player to his team. That's yeah. That's the, uh, and it always gets it always gets interpreted differently depending on on who you ask now were there any heart trophy winners uh heart trophy caliber winners from the 2001 nhl draft we'll find out we uh, continue to redraft different draft classes over the last 20 years or so and we're doing that uh doing that coming up next looking back to 2001 Pinder and steinberg with our 2001 nhl redraft next sportsnet 960 the fan
0: The superstars, the bus, the blockbuster trades. Pinder and Steinberg revisit another NHL draft. All right, welcome
2: back. Pinder and Steinberg here on your Thursday afternoon. Time to hop in the old time machine, Patty, and head back to 2,001. 5,000 game players, but not a single skater that cracked either 500 goals nor 1,000 points, and three pretty darn good netminders cracking 300s games played uh the draft was headlined with the atlanta thrashers selecting first overall pat Ilya kovalchuk one of the great snipers of this era of hockey went one to that uh almost forgotten franchise the atlanta thrashers
1: and i still think guys if uh you were to, to do it again and if atlanta were to do it again they'd still go with the same guy i mean Would you not go with Ilya Kovalchuk as the number one overall pick again if you're the Atlanta Thrashers, knowing all of what would happen in the next almost 20 years? I think Kovalchuk's still your guy, as I believe he's the best player to come out of the 2001 NHL draft. And I know that recent vintage Ilya Kovalchuk hasn't been as good Um but uh, and and you know we're we're talking about a guy that that went to the KHL, and um, his time in New Jersey wasn't anywhere near as as productive as maybe his time in Atlanta was, but still a pretty darn good player when when he was at his best. and I, I think that he was the best player to come out of that draft.
2: A prolific goal scorer that, as you pointed out, uh, it's tough to look at his career and say that's whole, given that he did go back to the KHL. Uh, he's played four fewer seasons than Jason Spezza, who went two in the draft to Ottawa and is still active in the NHL, as Kovalchuk is uh, with his, what, trade from Montreal to Washington, at the deadline, LA Kings before that. But it's just tough to say, oh, those are the numbers on Kovalchuk. That's what he is because it really misses the point. He spent yeah. a half decade plus with SKA St. Petersburg and was one of the best players in the KHL for almost the entirety of his time over there.
1: It would be, in fact, and and Logo, I'm I'm curious as to, if you look at it the same way, but like top two players in the draft from 2001, number one was Kovalchuk, number two was Spets at Ottawa. Like that's probably the same way that it gets redrafted today. Both those teams knowing what would happen over the next number of years, both those teams have got to be pretty happy with those two picks.
3: Yeah, I, I I think Ryan's right that, you know, the Kovalchuk thing, you look at it, but it's a really incomplete picture as to what could have been and maybe, you know, what should have been had he stayed in, in North America for longer. Maybe we are talking about a guy that, you know, well, actually, I think we are talking about a guy that was well on his way to a Hall of Fame uh, career scoring wise and probably would have gone down as one of the best uh, Russian players of all time if he doesn't already just because of you know, his scoring prowess and stuff. But I, I think so, yeah, Jason Spezza is a guy that, you know, probably doesn't give you the best memories of late like Kovalchuk does, but you remember some really good times uh, as a member of the Ottawa Senators before he spent some time in Dallas as well. And I think that you'd probably be pretty happy going back and looking at Jason Spezza with almost a 1,000 points in 1,100 games as well. Yeah, two
2: really good players at the top, two guys that are the cream of the draft. They went where they should have gone. Kovalchuk just feels like when he leaves to go to Russia, there's still a lot of really, really, really good hockey left. His final full Mm -hmm. season where he played 77 games before the lockout shortened season, he had 37 goals and 83 points. So he's over a point per game player. He puts up 19 points in 23 playoff games. He's three shy of 40 and he missed five games. I mean, that is an elite player in the NHL deciding after the, you know, the lockout season started him, in St. Petersburg, okay, he's going to go back after the lockout-shortened season. Uh, I believe the ruble was a lot stronger in 2013-14 than it has been in recent years. The KHL was spending money like crazy, and uh, they wanted a, a, a poster star from the NHL to come home, and they paid Kovalchuk politely to come do that. Uh, he, he was still a very, very good player, and Spets is not a bad player at all. What's interesting is after these top two guys that went one to you've got to go way down the list for arguably the next two best players in the draft because if you just look at the value of a starting netminder in the NHL, Craig Anderson and Mike Smith have put together a ton, a ton, a ton of starts in this league, and you could make the case that they should both be in the top five in terms of the careers that we've seen to this point. Interestingly, they're both also active alongside Kovalchuk, Spezza, Dan Hamhuis and Miko Koivu, who I believe are the only active players still left in the NHL.
1: Koivu's the guy for me that I I think that I I still would value him ahead of of Smith and Anderson, and I know how important um, a starting goaltender is, but... Uh, to have a guy that could be in the Selkie Trophy conversation on a perennial basis, who can put up decent points, and like Mikko Koivu's turned himself into a heck of a player. Uh, are we talking about a Hall of Fame career? No, probably not. But we're talking about a really solid career uh, as as he's turned into that guy uh, as a member of the Minnesota Wild. I, I like I look at Mikko Koivu's career. I look at what he's done, longevity wise, consistency wise, and and how much he helps a team win hockey games. I'm cool going with Koivu as my number three pick, but you're right. When you're you're talking about the value of a starting goaltender and you're talking about how important that is to win games, I think, and there's no doubt that Mike Smith and Craig Anderson are the two. Anderson's second draft, don't forget that, because in uh, 1999 drafted by the Flames, uh, and then gets drafted by the Blackhawks but yeah Smith to Dallas in the fifth round Anderson to Chicago in the third round those are your two best goalies of this draft and they probably deserve some top five consideration no doubt
2: Peter Budai Cristobal Huey some other guys we recognize the names but but not anywhere near the impact over their careers as a starting goaltender like Smith or Anderson has had although both of them did take some time to to get their footing and establish themselves as number one in this league um it's, it's a pretty decent class, as you noted, reminding yourself that it's Anderson's second time through the draft and he gets taken by Chicago. Other notes from this class, no real great goal scores, like a lot of forwards, but not many that scored well. In fact, once you get past Kovalchuk and Spezza, nobody at 300 and the next closest after that, Mike Camilleri, a bit of a finisher, and beyond that, well, I guess Patrick Sharp, maybe, Pommenville, maybe. I mean, th- there really weren't a lot of finishers in this draft class although there were a lot of really good i'd call them second third line players or second pairing defensemen in this draft pat
1: dennis seidenberg turned into a really good player was a huge part of boston's top pairing on their run to the uh, 2011 stanley cup he uh, he was a sixth round pick but you're right i mean you take a look at the the players that end up going the first round there weren't a lot of other stars that came out of it and there weren't logan a lot of just straight-up superstars that came from this draft kovalchuk yes spezza was for a couple of years Other than that, Mike Smith was a superstar when Arizona made their run to the Western Conference Final in uh, 2013, I believe it was. But other than that, I mean, we're not talking about a lot of superstar players to come out of this draft. There there were a lot of guys that ended up having really good NHL careers and really long NHL careers, but nobody that that really tipped the needle and said, yeah, that guy is a a straight-up
3: difference maker. That guy's a franchise player. No, very few guys. Maybe more guys that you would say you'd fill out your roster with, maybe some good uh, middle-of-your-lineup type of guys, you know, that you would you would always find a spot for them on your team, but you probably wouldn't go out of your way to sign the big money or something like that. I was personally surprised uh, when looking at this draft. that you, uh, Ryan, you mentioned that Camillary never made it to 300. That was a bit of a surprise to me because you're right. You think of Camillary primarily as a goal scorer in over 906 games. Uh, only at 294 goals. That was a bit surprising to me. And, yeah, like the second pairing guy or maybe the, you know, number two defenseman for sure. Uh, you get the likes of Kevin B. X in there, Merrick Sidlicki who played a long time in the league. But, you know, the the Derek Roys, the Brook Likes, uh, uh, R.J. Umberger, guys that, you know, would find a spot on your team. But you're right, Pat, nobody that's really going to make a case for the Hall of Fame by any means.
2: Yeah. Um, Another note on, uh, we should go back to the top 10. Uh, While the right decisions were made at one and two, tough to say that about some other picks early. Tampa Bay had the third overall pick. They went with Alexander Svitov. That didn't go well. Stephen Weiss at four to Florida. He was always a guy that was dripping with talent, but couldn't seem to put it together. Anaheim at five, a rare miss in the draft of the Ducks. Stanislav Chistov at five overall. Hardly heard from him. Uh, A better Second half of of that top 10, Koivu, Commissarek, Pascal Leclerc, the first goalie off the board at eight. He was followed two picks later by Dan Blackburn. And in the middle at number nine was Tomo Rutu. Now, we talked about this being a decent class for goalies. We already mentioned Budai, Huey, and then the two studs, Anderson and Smith. The two in the top 10 don't crack it. Blackburn looked like he was on track. He played in the NHL at an incredibly young age as a netminder. But remember that nerve damage. That And from the injury he suffered early in his career, actually had to play with two blockers, and then was faced with the decision of taking insurance money versus rolling the dice and continuing his career. I thought Dan Blackburn was going to be a really good netminder. That's an injury instance more than a failing to meet up to expectations. And Pascal Leclerc just never really panned out as anything close to a number one. Mike Commissarek was a a good defenseman, but certainly not a dynamic one. Like You'd love to have him on your second or third pair. Uh, and then there's a lot of guys like that. Although I'll say this, maybe the two best ever German defensemen, Christian Ehrhoff and Dennis Seidenberg. Am I missing anyone? Like those, that's a pretty good crop in one year.
1: And they got—they both came in in later rounds. Uh, that was a pretty. Eh. Some good value to be had in the uh, one draft in terms of later rounds. Thomas Plakanitz is a really good player, um, and, and he goes in round three. Seidenberg's a sixth-round pick, uh, long-time NHLer, and, and the guy who was the, the first-ever NHL shootout specialist. Uh, yep. UC Jokinen went in the sixth round. Logo, you mentioned Zdlitsky. Uh, Merrick Zidlitsky, when he was playing in Nashville, that was a heck of a player. Like Kimo Tiemann and, and Merrick Zidlicky together were a really good pairing for about a five- five-year span, one of the more prolific pairings in the NHL, just another along um a long line of of really good nashville defensemen that was before the webbers and the suitors and um and and eckholm ellis so on and so forth the predators have always just had really good defensemen Did licky was a sixth round pick you mentioned airhoff he was a fourth round pick like was a sixth round pick um and kevin johnny bx a, a fifth round pick was that
2: johnny oduya 221 to the washington capitals 850 games on the blue line the swede that uh that that's as good as it well, one of the one of the really good beyond two hundred, you get a guy playing eight hundred and fifty games, like that's a lottery. That's challenge. a home run. Yeah. Uh, some other names people will remember. A lot of goalies in this class. Ray Emery, rest in peace. He had a, a very good but shorter career. Martin Gerber spent some time in the league. Ryan Klo was like the quintessential uh mucking power forward that you Watch know, the offense wasn't prolific, but Man, was he a big tough guy to play against. Uh it and then the other goalies that were in this mix as well, Passy Nurmanin's the name, UC Markinen, who went on that magical ride with the Oilers in 04 or 06, excuse me. There was uh there's some good names in here, but they're just uh there aren't the stars, right?
1: Definitely not. And uh look, it was I, I think was uh, we're we're definitely starting to find out that you know there are there are good draft classes and there are bad draft classes but as we start to really go through these things i mean we're starting to really i think come to the realization that you know like usually in a draft class there's only a handful of guys that, that turn into big-time stars, and, and that is very much the case here because there's only a handful of guys that turned into to really big stars. It's funny because this wasn't a bad draft from a Calgary Flames standpoint. Uh, their first-round pick was Chuck Cobasue, Um and he ended up having a decent NHL career, not an incredible one, but a decent one. Um, both he and David Moss came from this draft class, and, and – I'll, I'll say this much. You know, the, the Calgary Flames have had their issues drafting. Uh, it's gotten better, no doubt, in recent years. Even under Daryl Sutter, uh, it was starting to get a little bit better. But the uh, the early 2000s and late 1990s was not a banner stretch for drafting by this team. For them to get Moss and Kobasu and both of those guys to play more than 500 NHL games, uh, for that vintage of Calgary Flames drafts, That has to be a rousing success. And you
2: know what? The Flames, we noted it a couple of years ago. They finally took a Russian for the first time in a long time. Uh, The 0-1 draft, a very good reason for our franchise to be sour on drafting Russians. They took Andrei Teratuk and Andrei Medvedev, both in the second round, the forward and the uh, interestingly shaped netminder. Then in the fourth round, Igor Shastin, they take him, and then Yuri Trubachev, in the fifth round, they took four Russians who combined for zero NHL games,
1: and I believe all of those guys still show up on the preseason <laughs> list for the Calgary <laughs> Flames because they, they still their own their rights. I believe. Yeah. Um, like it, I
2: don't know it's, that it's, any are ready to come over. I feel like just a little more, um, you know, marinating and stewing. Like the, let's just let them keep building up these these nearly forty-year-olds, Pat.
1: <laughs> I remember. Uh, I don't remember what World Junior it was, but Lou Lou would remember the date, Uh, but I remember watching the World Juniors. It was uh, a World Junior that uh, I I remember it because it was, I believe, Gary Green and Paul Romanek were doing the play-by-play on TSN, and I remember watching it. Canada had a lead in the gold medal game. Russians came back. They ended up winning. Uh, Canada imploded a little bit, and I I just remember watching Medvedev. They showed him in the tunnel, Um, and, and... watching the game getting ready to celebrate the russians winning gold and i just remember that was the first time i knew that he was a a calgary flames draft pick and i knew that people had talked a little bit about conditioning and that type of stuff but that was the first time i'd ever seen him and you're like whoa that does not look like a first round or a or, or a, uh, uh, a top three round pick in the NHL draft. I was stunned when I saw him. I, I couldn't believe that. You're like, oh, my goodness. That does not look like an athlete, let alone a, a high draft pick in the NHL. It was incredible. Had the furnace face going, very
2: <laughs> round, round cranium. Uh, looked like a uh, little insulation around the skeleton on that young man. He actually played for three under 20 Russian teams, which is incredible to think that that world junior tournament to get three laps, you've got to be a really, really good player. And often if you're that good, the NHL might snipe you away from your last chance at it, but he played there in the old 2000, 2001 season, Oh one Oh two and Oh two Oh three. That's that's three years as a goalie at that tournament. Uh, he was a prospect. It just, he was uh, not, not the most in shape prospect of all time. Here's some other. Well, uh, and just uh, quickly oh, sorry, before we move on,
1: yeah. just before we move on, it's not like Medvedev's, um, career really took it's not like he went to russia and you know had a good career over there he was drafted in 01 his hockey career was done in 05 uh like it just it never really turned into hockey never really turned into his thing
2: no fair enough there's lots of uh, flame storylines in this draft pat that don't have to do necessarily with players they selected but you might have already recognized some names craig anderson of course a Flames draft pick two years earlier, wasn't signed, redrafted by Chicago. Mike Smith, who spent time here in Calgary at 161, went to Dallas. Camilleri, of course, rings a bell for Flames fans. 49th overall to the LA Kings. Freddie Schustrom. Coyotes take him at 11. He would come to Calgary. Forever a flame. Uh, Not quite, no. Uh, Happy birthday, Tim Jackman. He went 38 to the Columbus Blue Jackets. Forever a flame. (laughs) And Jordan Sigillette, the Flames goalie coach. 209 to the boston bruins he of one minute uh in the nhl i believe
1: the uh the funny thing on uh and i logan you're you're making the 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 tongue-in-cheek comments about freddie schustrom but he might be the most forgotten member of one of the biggest trades in uh, Calgary flames history um in the dion Fanouf trade uh freddie schustrom was one of the guys that went the other way it was Enough along with schustrom and Keith ollie, ollie Uh that went to Toronto for the package that included Stagen and everybody else. And I say that tongue in cheek, but Stagen was the only guy that turned into a long time flamer, you know, really played a lot of NHL games afterwards. Jamal Mayers, you know, he he, he spent White more time okay. in the
3: league. What's that? Ian White was okay.
1: Ian White was barely played long. after that. White got his arbitration got his arbitration award and was out of the league a few years later. He got traded to Carolina, um, and he was out of the league by 2013. So, I mean, Ian White barely played as a Flame. Uh, he ended up playing. Uh, what do we have here? played 33 games 34 games a member of the calgary flames uh so white barely played mayors was gone the next year hagman had the next longest calgary flames tenure Gross. but he was gone shortly afterwards like just a that was a that was a bunch of spare parts and staging that the flames got in that draft it's it's too bad that that's what the dion funuf return ended up being
2: he wasn't really the greatest trade in Flames history. You know what? They should stop doing multiplayer deals with Toronto, Pat. The the old 10-player swap in the early 90s didn't go so well either. What are you talking about? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, we, we haven't really had a lot of Gary Lehman moments in our uh, trips down Memory Road on this day in Flames history. Maybe I haven't heard them and they've been there, but I feel like there'll be a lot of this day in Doug Gilmore as a Leaf history.
1: Ah. The Flames also traded McCown and Natras in that deal, too. Oh, it was Uh... a heist. It was a- like it was it's like Jamie McCown was a good defenseman at the time. Like he's only three years removed from winning a Stanley Cup. He's uh, probably at that time uh, just under a decade into his NHL career. So just hitting the peak of his career. He'd go on and be a big part of a Red Wings team uh, a few years later that won a Stanley Cup. Like McCown was a good defenseman at the time. Natris was a good player. Like that was an absolute heist that year in 1992. Gilmore, McCown, Manderville, Natris, and Wamsley to Toronto for Berube. Bay um, Lehman, uh, Michelle Petit, Jeff Reese, and Alexander Godinuk. Those were the uh, players that came the other way to the Flames. Yeah,
2: yeah, there you
1: go.
2: Crazy. How so much good. I know about him. Should,
3: should just one quick note too. After the string of not good uh, Calgary Hitmen coming out of the recent drafts around this time, uh, mm-hmm. someone on the morning show might know something about that. Uh, just oh, yeah. one Calgary Hitman drafted in this draft class. Owen Fussy went to the uh capitals in round number three he only played four nhl games it's four
2: more than all of us combined tip your cap to owen
3: and four times more
1: than brent cron that's correct i wasn't gonna go there but yep we did still to come this hour our nhl insider chris johnston as we continue there's another uh nhl redraft will do 2002 on friday it's pinder and steinberg with the first round of the nhl draft coming your way at the top of the hour of the nfl draft if i said nhl i meant nfl on uh, sportsnet 960 the fan
0: strange times for sure sportsnet 960 the fan is here for you no sports no problem pinder and steinberg continues right now on sportsnet 960 the fan
2: Well, and on day 43 of the sports apocalypse, no sports might be a little bit too strong. NFL draft coming up at 5 o'clock. Oh, my goodness. How excited are we for something that is close to sports? No, there won't be athletes sweating and competing with a scoreboard, but there will be a draft board, and we will see who the next stars of the NFL will be, uh, starting with our coverage beginning at 5 o'clock. NHL insider Chris Johnson joined us earlier today. We started off with more details emerging on what the nhl's return could look like
5: we are and i think that that's because the nhl is starting to make some decisions you know namely ruling out a few of those neutral site uh, options that uh, they had at least considered in in theory uh you know when they were looking at contingencies and and now the plan is pretty clear that they you know are going to have if they can play of course being the the huge caveat here but they're they're going to pick uh you know, some NHL cities to, uh, centralize games in, uh, they'd hope to finish the regular season, meaning all 31 teams playing games across four cities, if possible, if if that's not possible, uh, I do think that they would go to the expanded playoff scenario that we've talked about in the past, you know, probably something uh, like a 2014 scenario in those cities, but, but one way or another, it, it is becoming clear kind of the, the, the way they envision this and, and, you know, I think it's a reflection as well of all the things that are needed to make the the bubble work here. Uh, you know, with the coronavirus, to to you know have have places with certain facilities, have hotels nearby those arenas, and lots of other ice as well to for teams to skate on in practice. So,
1: what are some of the logistics and concerns the NHL needs to take into place? Like, what are some of the keys that they're going to have to make sure that they have? all ironed out if this is going to be an actual reality?
5: Well, namely, I think they're going to need permission. And, you know, at this point, they've reached out to some local government people. Obviously, you know, they've leaned on their own medical experts in, in formulating this plan. And, and, you know, they have a, a virus specialist, uh, you know, on, on retainer at this point. So, you know, I think that really they're going to have to wait and see if the borders open up. Uh, if they're gonna be allowed to play in some of the places they're eyeing by the local government. And then, you know, I think that they're gonna to have to really dig down on how this is functionally going to work. And and you know that's one thing I don't have a clear view on. Is it gonna be taking players uh, temperature, you know, when they, they come and go, which is something that we've heard bandied about, for example, in the German soccer league, is as they're looking to restart here in the next few weeks, it's it's the, the plan they're gonna take, is there going to be mass testing? You know, I think that the, some of the nuts and bolts of this haven't been ironed out and, frankly, haven't been taken to the NHL Players Association yet either. So, you know, I, I would presume when and if that happens that, that there could be some changes and some negotiations around some of these things. But, you know, I think that that really is it, that they're kind of, you know, mapping out how it would look and then they're waiting to see if they're able to do it, if 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 the governments will allow it. And, and if that is the case, obviously they have to have discussions with the players and, uh, you know, make decisions that way before going forward
1: with it. And I know that they haven't necessarily had formal conversations with the players' association about this, but do you get the sense from players that you've spoken with and been in contact with that, you know, there is a, an appetite
5: to do something like this? I think it's it's touch and go. You know, I, I've heard from some guys that have concerns about potentially being away from families for for two months or something. If you know, you're talking about a team that ends up going and finishing the regular season, which on its own the league thinks will take three weeks if they can do that. And then, you know, whatever period afterwards, the, the playoffs take up. I mean, there's, that's a lot to ask of the players, but you know, obviously there's, there's other guys either that don't have families or maybe that are less concerned with that. I think that they'll, they'll obviously, you know, among a population of players at 750 deep, there's going to be a range of opinions on, on that type of thing. And, and, you know, some of those concerns I think will have to be addressed, but ultimately if the league finds a way to, to do this safely you know I have to believe it's, it's likely to happen if, if they're going to be allowed to, to operate in these jurisdictions where they want to play, and, and uh, if there's nothing in the way and they come up with a plan that, that protects to the best degree possible, everyone's health and safety, you know it, it does seem as though they're quite intent on, on trying to execute this idea and, and find a way to complete this season.
1: One of the uh, cities that has been thrown around or or mentioned numerous times is Edmonton. I think uh uh Minnesota, Raleigh have been two of the other cities. Like are these are, are these the leading ca- candidates for where they would be looking the way you understand it too?
5: Yeah, I think that we could call them leading candidates, but but they're not only candidates because I think the league's mindful of the fact that, you know, we're still two and a half months out, probably give or take before this would ever come to life. And and there's the possibility for outbreaks. There's the possibility for change of heart and all those things. So I I think that they probably have a list that's more like 10 cities deep, give or take uh, of, of options. You know, the, the appeal, especially of an Edmonton is that they have a practice rink right within the the building there. Uh, They have a nice new hotel right across the street that's connected by a land bridge. You know, I think that there's a way to contain that, that building. And obviously it's a newer arena with lots of amenities, lots of, uh, different dressing room space and everything needed to, to make this happen. And, you know, I can see uh, the appeal of that, that city in particular. I think Toronto is one of the places they've looked uh, Tampa and Florida, both I've heard Vegas as a possibility. I think Calgary might even at least be, be looked at. And, and so, you know, the, the, the cities you've heard are probably, I would say at this point the most likely, but they're certainly not the only places the league is, is looking at as a possibility and, and, um you know a lot of this will depend on on how things develop with the virus here in the next couple of weeks and and months and and where things are at i guess at at that point.
1: And final one on this, and, and that's just on you know going back and and watching Ron with uh, with Gary yesterday, and and the commissioner talked about how they they don't want to rush this back. Being first back doesn't matter, uh, but at the same time, talked about how it is definitely an issue. I know that you quoted this on your Twitter that you know right now there's no revenues coming in, and, and that is certainly something that that can't be overlooked. Where do they? Like, how difficult is that to strike the balance of not rushing back, but also knowing that they they do need revenues to start coming in at some point?
5: Well, I, I think it's it can almost be categorized two ways. I, I, they just don't see themselves as racing, say, against the NBA. And, you know, let's face it, the, the NHL has some disadvantages if we're talking about, you know, which North American sport can get up and running first. I mean, the, the mere fact that we're probably looking at three-week training camps, uh, just because players have to get back on the ice and and get in, in shape that way is probably going to put them at a disadvantage if we're handicapping you know which sport can be, get back sooner. I, I don't think that there's the same sort of technical specialized skill that NBA players you know haven't been able to work on. Obviously, I'm sure some of those guys haven't been able to shoot and all those things. But you know, I, I do think that that puts them in a spot where it's going to be hard to to race back. But you know, all that being said, I think that the they're cert- they're not downplaying the fact that they they want to get back, and I think. You know, quite honestly, the league's willing to play into September uh, if that's what it takes. You know, I I, I don't know that there's that the cutoff date is maybe even as early as I once thought it was. You know, maybe they they don't even start till August. I don't think that can be completely ruled out. I doubt it's it's certainly not the preferred way. Obviously, that they'd like to be playing games in June if if that allows. But you know, I think that they've they're they're approaching the calendar with a high degree of flexibility, uh, and so that that's where the priorities lie. It's not so much about where they stand versus the other sports leagues, but I do think that they're going to do everything they can to finish the season and find a way to, you know, start to claw back some of that revenue that, that will be lost for 2019-20 and, and, you know, build some some momentum into the, the season to come after it.
1: He's Chris Johnston. Our NHL insider joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on Pinder and Steinberg.
2: CJ, like just listening to what you laid out there, the, the notion of teams that are so far out of it that, playoffs are unrealistic even if they run the table and get help i find that fascinating especially when uh we recall the comments that drew Doughty made is there uh do you think a way to welcome 22 or 24 teams back or is this all about trying to recover as much revenue as possible and, and even bringing back teams that are probably operating like they're heading into the offseason because there's there's nothing left to play for in the standings
5: you, certainly the priority is is to have all 31 teams finish off the regular season. And so there are 189 total regular season games left when the season was paused. You know, the league thinks they can play in three weeks using four venues, three games a day can can churn through those games in, in roughly three weeks uh, to, to finish off the season. Now, I don't know how likely that is. It, it's, it's hard for me to even handicap, you know, if that's going to happen, but that's, that's, it's pretty clear. That's the message here. I mean, if you're, I remember the Detroit Red Wings or Anaheim Ducks or San Jose, you know, one of these teams that's clearly, I mean, in the case of the Red Wings, already actually mathematically eliminated, but, but you know, teams that, that maybe weren't expecting to play. I, mean, I think that you have to interpret what's being said here as at least a, a stronger possibility than before that you are going to play. Because, you know, with four centers, you know, sort of one per division, if that's how it all shakes out, it, it is a workable plan. And, you know, I think that part of this is that some of those teams – of individual TV deals. And, you know, this is a way for them to satisfy some of the conditions of those deals. And so if they don't play, that they, they would have credits they would have to give back to, to their TV partners or money or, you know, there'd be some sort of financial give and take that way. And so I think that, that you know, taking everything into account and leaks had a lot of discussions with, you know, calls with team presidents, calls with marketing managers, calls with the GMs, obviously calls with the owners and the board of governors that you know, I think taking into account the feedback from everyone that the league feels the best way is to try to complete the season. Now what's interesting is if you have four centers, I mean, it's not going to be the season as it was originally mapped out. It'll be all interdivisional games uh, being played. So, you know, if your team that had 12 games left, you're going to, you know, have some combination of games against your division, you know, equaling 12 to get to that number of 82. Uh, So it's not exactly the season as originally conceived, at least from my understanding of what's been discussed. But, you know, I do think that the preference is to have every team play 82 games to, to help them satisfy local commitments in their markets with sponsors and, and TV partners, and then also to, I guess, preserve a version of what's an 82-game season with statistics and everything, and, and then you probably go right into a 16-team playoff rather than some of the expanded formats we've discussed.
2: What happens if there's an outbreak in one of these, say, four central locations? How much of a wrench is that in the plans if, if if one of the four is immediately halted?
5: You are a expert at your crap, because to me that is the one question, burning question, most important issue, and I don't have an answer. Yeah. I don't know how they intend to address that, but I think that it, it will be the most important issue that they have to you know, first satisfy the players with, you know, address with. The PA, if, if, they're, if they get to a stage where they can discuss this as more of a hypothetical than it is today and, and if it looks like it can become reality. And you know, I think the public is going to want to know about that. I mean, if you live in a city like Edmonton or St. Paul, Minnesota or Raleigh or somewhere where all these players are coming, I think you're entitled to kind of understand what uh, measures the league's taking to keep the population safe you know, by bringing people, in some cases, you know, players and staff maybe that have been over in Europe uh, during this period that that the outbreak's been going on, and bringing them all into your community and testing and how that's all going to work and and you know it's it's pretty I think self-evident that the league would view the the idea of canceling you know going through all this training camps starting to play and then having to cancel the season I mean that 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 almost can't happen they have to do absolutely everything possible I think and and. You know, given how the virus spreads, I mean, I don't know if there there's ever going to be a hundred percent fail-safe plan here, but they're they're going to have to have a way of addressing this, and they're going to have to contemplate the possibility that you know one or more players or staff end up getting the virus and, and potentially passing it on in the close environment that the teams inhabit if they are able to go ahead with this. And hmm. you know, I, I don't I don't really yet know how they plan to do that, but you know, I do think it's the most important issue probably to address if, if this becomes a reality.
2: Well, and I guess it underlines just the fact that I think as sports fans, we're all at home and there's nothing live on TV. And we may view the finish line as yes, sports are back on this date, but that's almost like the beginning of a second leg for this leagues because getting back is one thing, but then to keep your league safe and healthy and running is also a, an arduous task, isn't it?
5: It is. And I think there's going to have to be some degree of risk here and, and it's going to be managed risk. It's going to be well thought out risk, but you know, again, I, I don't, I think it's possible to, to say 100% that, that the, there won't be some sort of outbreak that a player or staff member involved in this won't contract the coronavirus. I don't know that they can create the conditions where that's possible. Obviously, everything will be done to a crazy degree. I think the level of sanitation, the physical distancing, the ensuring anyone that comes anywhere near in contact with the, the, the teams is also observing, you know, sort of quarantine or self-isolation period. But Um, you know, this, this is a bit of a silent disease too. Not everyone, or virus, not everyone realizes they have it. And and there's all Mm -hmm. sorts of things that go on there with that. And so, you know, if if they restart, there's going to be a possibility. Uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's going to be some possibility that 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 happens. And I think the league is going to have to live with that idea. And they'll probably be a little bit afraid of it because, you know, they wouldn't want to see, especially a, a major outbreak that requires them to shut down the games or, stop stop playing I mean, that's that's sort of a, a nightmare scenario in this but you know that's that's part of what all these leagues will, will be thinking about is that they get up and running again
1: cj uh chris johnson's with us by the way or nhl insider kind of on the same wavelength the the nhl draft is is a fascinating conversation too the league doesn't know how they're going to restart but they're starting to kind of frame plans of a of a july restart and yet there's also talk about a june draft what can you tell us about what the nhl is thinking about about the 2020 nhl draft
5: well what i can tell you is that it's not particularly popular at least with the, the executives i speak with and and you know, obviously, there's no satisfying everyone with any of this stuff. I mean, we've, we've talked about pick conditions in, in the past. We've, we've, You know, even maybe a playoff format or how they, they do these final regular season games. I mean, look, there's going to be moaning probably in multiple places with whatever's decided. But, you know, I've kind of come to warm to this idea a little bit, uh, if only because, let's face it, if, if, there's a, if the season goes into September and the draft is not till mid-September or October, you know, there's all kinds of problems with that, too. You know, what you can do right now is, is give yourself a little bit of certainty in the sense that you, you keep the draft somewhere near its normal position. You know, you, you've had your scouts basically preparing all year long. You know, good point that Elliot Friedman made in, in the blog he posted this week is, you know, a lot of scouts' contracts run through June 30th, and not all those, those scouts are, are going to be retained as of July 1st for teams. I mean, there's a natural turnover there, and some teams might even lose some of their scouts before what would eventually be the draft if, if they didn't to get this done, you know, in June and, you know, really what, where I guess the, the controversy could lie is that, you know, you're, you're having a draft lottery after only 85% of a regular season instead of after hundred percent. And that, you know, that could pretend, present some challenges, but, you know, I think the league is, is quite serious about trying to do this. Uh, you know, I, it was interesting that Gary Batman framed it as a trial balloon in terms of floating the idea on Tuesday on his, his call with with the general managers Tuesday afternoon um, to, to get their feedback. Because as I say, I, I do know some, you know, multiple teams that are very against this idea that don't think it's fair, that, that, that just don't like the idea in any way, shape or form. Hmm. But, you know, I, I think we have to look at the larger picture here too. I mean, I personally, I, I would call myself a bit of a fair weather NFL fan. You know, I'm a fan of the Cowboys. So I usually watch them play. I don't follow the whole league. I'll probably watch the draft tonight. Because there ain't much else on in terms of well, there's nothing else on in terms of new live actual sporting events that are happening, and a draft is not the same as an event, but it's something approximating one. And and you know, I think that the NHL is is looking at what the the, the hype that's built around the NFL and seeing a chance for them to to give fans and media and and themselves something to talk about, and something to do in June, when you know at that point there probably will be very little going on. Uh, maybe other than, you know, hopefully some training camps for a July restart. On that note, I'm I'm curious, because I would assume that
1: if they were to do a June draft, it would be of a remote variety. I, I wonder how much the league is going to be paying attention to how the NFL goes about their business, how it translates to television, the pitfalls, the things that work, the things that don't work. How How closely do you think they're paying attention tonight?
5: I think as close as you absolutely can, because... You know, in, in any event here, I think that the league has more or less accepted the idea that they're going to have to have a, a virtual draft, an online draft, what have you. Uh, you know, even if it comes in in you know an off season that that lands in the fall, if it's in June, you know, the idea of getting everyone together, or even getting a smaller, uh, you know, version of what the normal draft is together, I, I think is, you know, it's not it's not really that realistic at this point, and so you know they can learn from the NFL this is the first time the NFL has done it entirely online you know there were reports this week that that the the dry run they did you know had some technical glitches and and wasn't perfect so it'll be i guess interesting to see from that standpoint just even how it works how it flows what the presentation looks like and you know i can tell you for sure that the the NHL will be taking a lot of notes because you know one way or another whenever they end up scheduling their draft i think it's going to look something similar to this and and you know I don't see it as the long term solution I guess you can never say never I do think the league will endeavor to get back to the point where we're having a draft that that looked like you know the ones we've come to know in recent years but you know at least for the time being you know this is probably going to be the most effective way to to, to get it done
1: NHL insider Chris Johnston with us on this Thursday afternoon on Pinder and Steinberg CJ I
2: kind of feel like we're going to be into the realm of uh, a lot of conditional picks uh we already talked about um I guess I shouldn't even say conditional, compensatory picks. So if GMs are worried about, well, we play the playoffs and that helps with seeding or there's a full season and then from there, you know, we know who's in the lottery, who isn't, you could always sprinkle more picks into the 2021 draft if if people felt like, okay, we had these conditions about playoff success. Is that one way the NHL could solve some of the concerns of GMs or is it bigger stuff than that that they're concerned about?
5: I think that that's, that's a big part of it. Um, you know, I think some of them just don't like the idea of doing it now. I mean, look, some teams, you know, take Montreal Canadiens, for example. They have 14 draft picks in, in the 2020 draft. You know, I think that they are a good example of a team that would probably be looking to turn some of those picks into roster players in a normal draft year. And, and you know, so the, the fact that, that really we're not going to see roster players dealt at the draft and, and that option would be off the table in June, I think it's, it's something that a lot of teams don't like. Um, you know, I, but there's, there's all kinds of, I guess, issues with it. I mean, the, 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 there's, a, there's only really a few picks that I think make a huge difference in terms of conditions. I mean, any trades that have, you know, if the team gets to the second round, it becomes this. I mean, if, if you're doing that with the regular season not complete, it's, it's hard to even make anything close to a fair ruling on that. I think you're right that the solution probably lies in adding some compensatory picks trying to make good that way. You know, one thing I've heard floated that I don't totally understand is the idea that, you know, teams that, that gave up assets at the deadline to bring in rental players, that they're going to get compensatory picks. I just don't see that happening. I mean, to me, the league is going to view that the same way as if you traded for that player and he suffered a season-ending injury, uh, you know, a few games into his tenure with the new team, and, and that's unfortunate, and, and we're sorry that happened. You didn't get the value you expected at the time you traded for him, but, I mean, there's risk in, in all those types of deals. I, it's going to be, a, I think, it'll be an interesting thing to watch play out because it, it's clear to me in hearing Gary Bettman speak that, that we're we're seeing the NHL, and let's face it, it's by necessity. It won't be just a an NHL approach to this, but but a degree of flexibility, of ingenuity, of stretching. I think the boundaries of what they're willing to do uh, to a degree that we've never seen in the past. And so, you know, probably the the, the path here to to trying to straighten things out is. Is to add more picks for for teams to try to address those type of concerns, and then of course there'll be a few sour grapes, no doubt, because there's there's no way to please everyone in this. And you know, Gary Bettman's already said we've left we've left any idea of the perfect world behind, and they're just trying to find the next version of perfect or the next best solution under difficult circumstances. And and I do think everybody, you know, put your team allegiance aside if you can for a moment, has to. You know, try to embrace the idea of, of doing what they can to, to help the sport get back on its feet, to promote it, to, to, to take advantage of what will probably still be a pretty captive sports audience in June and, and do the draft. Then, if for no other reason than marketing reasons, to try to, you know, get some interest going again and, and you know, get the, get the idea that things are starting to resume to something a little bit more like normal and on the path to recovery. Last one for
2: you, a quick one. Uh, Elvis Merzlikins gets inked not long after Eunice Corpusalo gets inked. They both have two-year deals with uh, yes, matching term, but not matching cap. It just a thought on the tandem, the platoon, and uh, what's been accomplished here by Jarmo Kekalainen.
5: Well, it's it's a cheap tandem at six point eight million, and it was you know a tandem if you look at the numbers this year that performed pretty well. I would suggest to you it's probably not a coincidence the order these were done uh just with Corpusalo being probably the more proven commodity at this point, certainly in terms of tenure in the NHL and and his deal comes in at two point eight million. Murzlikens, who's played thirty odd games as an NHL starter, uh, you know, gets four million on his deal. But, you know, that's reflective of the fact that the Blue Jackets were very, very high in Merslickens. He was viewed as the best goalie outside the NHL before he got here. He struggled initially uh in his time with the Blue Jackets, but then was you know, one of the great uh, bright lights of their season after Corpus Hallowe got injured. And so, you know, they've taken I guess a little bit of a, a calculated bet on giving him four million dollars after thirty odd NHL games, but um, you know, all in all it's it, I think it's a pretty cost effective tandem and I expect it to be Elvis's job as the number one, uh, you know, assuming he can pick up where he left off when we get back. Great
1: stuff with our NHL insider, Chris Johnston, Tuesdays and Thursdays on Pinder and Steinberg. That'll do it for the show today. Up next, round one, 2020 NFL Draft. At least for a weekend, we can pretend like things are normal in the sporting world. The NFL Draft coming your way at the top of the hour. Thanks to Chris Johnston, Kelly Rudy, uh, and Deshaun Brissette. All of our guests up at sportsnet.ca slash 960 right now. For Logan Gordon and Ryan Pinder, my name is Pat Steinberg. We'll talk to you on Pinder and Steinberg tomorrow. Sportsnet 960 the fans.